Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly... Here we go. Out with the old. And in with the new. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. And welcome to a bold new era in Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Scott Gardner. And as you no doubt noticed from the new intro, we are switching gears. And in a lot of ways, I think we're starting the podcast that Scott and I wanted to do in the first place. (laughs) Because way back in December... Uh, October or November of last year, I think December, we were actually recording episodes by then. I can't remember. (laughs) Like, I can remember all the podcasts I do. (laughs) That sounded a little more arrogant than I wanted it to. I was actually trying to be uh, self-deprecating. But um, as we've discussed many times on this show, is that I think from the beginning, Scott and I wanted to work on something together. I think from the first couple of times we got together to record, there was just something there. It's like, look, I gotta find. I will clear some decks to work with this guy, uh, you know, on a weekly show. And we finally hit upon doing the JSA because we both like JSA. And when each of us said, "Yeah, let's start with All Star Comics number fifty-eight, and then we'll move forward," what we were really saying is, we really want to fucking talk about the All Star Squadron. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so here we are. Uh, it's almost like we can put a new number one on this episode, but we're not going to do that because we're not. Yeah, let's reboot. <laughs> reboot with two new hosts that know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, I, I don't know if Scott has anything to, to kind of say to, to introduce this, but uh, uh, I feel that doing this podcast, 
I am making up for something that I let go years ago. Back in 2007, I started a po- uh, a podcast, no, a blog on on Blogger called The Parasphere. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at the site right now, and it's The Paris- Parasphere. 1942, a world at war! Under direct orders from President Roosevelt, the mightiest heroes of Earth 2 have banded together to battle the Axis menace as the All-Star Squadron. And what I did was I started at issue zero, as I called it, which was the preview issue in uh, Justice League of America number 193. And I was going through using the uh, All-Star Companion Volume 2 and a scanner and, you know, various internet sources doing an index of the All-Star Squadron. And I got to issue eight, and because of various reasons, I never got to finish it. I had to, I stopped doing it. It, you know, I just kind of came to an abrupt end and I have always felt bad about that, but I've never had the time to go back and fix that. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to get to this title here. Because this time, damn it, with Scott, I'm finishing it. I'm doing the whole series, and Infinity Incorporated, and Young All-Stars. It, it's, it's just that freaking important to me, because... As I was reading the, the, the two issues we're going to be covering today, I realized that the All-Star Squadron is my favorite superhero team ever. As much as I love the JSA, and this is kind of like the JSA, this group, for whatever reason, appeals to me on just about every level of being a superhero fan. There, it, it, it has all of my favorite characters. It has characters that became favorite characters just because of this series. And I am so happy and so excited, like like you know, like like a kid who's had too much sugar excited to be talking about these books and these stories from you know, ever since discovering the series in nineteen ninety four in that thirty cent box at Beachhead Comics. So I'm just I'm just happy as can be to be doing this. I I, I really I'm going to keep babbling if I, you know, if I keep trying to talk. So, Scott, you take it away. Take, <laughs> take me out of this, damn it. <laughs> I, I echo you completely. And uh, and these books have a lot of sentimental value to me. Um, right out of the gate, the first one we'll be talking about has a lot of sentimental value, and I'll, I'll touch on that. But not, not, you know, I mean, a big reason is because I can remember when I was actively seeking to complete this series because I had spotty issues here and there. You know, I had like the preview issue and I had number one and then I had a couple spotty issues and I had, um, the, uh, the crossover ones later, you know, there's that crisis, not, not crisis on infinite earths, but the crisis, what was it? Crisis on earth prime, I think was the name of it that crossed over with like, uh, Justice League of America, and I think another title, wasn't it? Or was it just the two of them? No, it was All-Star and Justice League of America. Okay. And, you know, some other odd issues. And it was kind of like I've done with other series, you know, as I've continued collecting and everything. It was just one of those things where I was looking back at a series that I loved, but I didn't have all the issues of and going, I gotta, I gotta finish that collection. I've gotta know where that story went. And this was right at the time when I was living in Rochester and rooming with Chris Honeywell. 
So, you know, he could attest to how religious I was in that search. And, you know, this was way before, you know, Internet or eBay was even a gleam in anybody's eye. This was this was early 90s, you know. And, uh, and it was just a blast going around to the different places in uh, in Rochester and hunting these back issues. And it's literally been about that long since I've dug these issues out and fully read the entire series. So I'm really looking forward to both, you know, the things that I remember and the characters that I remember and the events that I remember. But I'm equally looking forward to all the shit that I forgot that, you know, how awesome it was. So this is, yeah, I'm really itching to get into this because it's it's going to be great. Because I loved this series when I read it before, and I know I'm going to love it anew. Because I really, I care about these characters. I, I cared about the world that they lived in, and I thrilled to it. And I'm, I'm so excited to thrill to it all over again. So You know, it, it's really cool to hear that I wasn't the only one that had a hard damn time finding all of these issues because it was oh, yeah. literally like an eight-year odyssey to complete all of it, and I finally had to break down and like buy a couple off of MileHigh.com yeah. to, to, to finish it out. because And it was literally like searching 50-cent boxes because I bought all Titans had when I moved down here because for some reason where I lived in PA... All of the comic shops had the exact same back issue selection. It, it, it was kind of frustrating at times, as you might imagine. So, uh, I'm actually I'm I'm really jealous of anybody modern day that's that's looking to complete this collection because I know that you're going to have a much easier time of it than I did because I was hunting it in those pre like I say the pre-internet days. Mm. And I know for a fact that there were a lot of issues that I had to pay a hefty sum for because they were rarer than others for whatever odd reason. So, yeah. Well, the, I, the hardest to find were the first appearances of Infinity Incorporated. Yes. It's like annual number one, easy as hell to find. Annual mm-hmm. number three, 50 billion copies in every shop I went to. Annual number two, wow. It, yep. That one took a little time to do. Uh, glad I'm not the only one you make me feel like, uh, <laughs> like I was. But it was it was a voyage of discovery too. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, to my to my recollection, I, I could be wrong about this, but it seems that I may have read them as I acquired them, and not necessarily have sat and read the the story from one to the end. So, you know that. That'll be fun to do that because I'm. I don't think that's the way I read it. So there, there were parts where I may not have been getting the entire story because I hadn't been following it sequentially. I just read it as I snagged new issues. Mm-hmm. And this isn't the most, you know, accommodating series for that. This is no. really a series where you know you've got to you've got to jump in at the beginning and stick with it and pay attention because there's a lot of shit going on. Well, you know, it's very continuity heavy. It's very continuity uh, referencing, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it's not necessarily, you know, your standard pick up an issue you can jump right in type of, type of magazine. It's actually, it's about the farthest thing from that, really. It's, it's, it's kind of funny you mention that, too, is because, like I mentioned in the very first episode of this series, I bought like 30 or so issues out of that 30 cent box. 
and it ranged from the first three, and then there was like issue 12, issue 18, issue 24, you know, and then like like a, a little run in the 30s, and then a couple of the 40s. And I read all of that at once in the summer of 95, uh, when I was just going through all the comics that I owned at the time. And at the time, I only owned about 1,500 books. And I look back on that and go, wow, I remember what it was like to have free space. Um, but you're right. It's kind of it was kind of weird to jump through the that because it's like something really freaking huge would happen, but it would only be referenced in the Roy Thomas esque uh, flashback sequences that the right. book would have. So when I actually sat down to read the whole thing in 2000, it was like you said, a real voyage of discovery where all the holes were filled in my head of the missing issues and actually seeing what happened instead of just seeing it in a flashback or seeing what happened solely based on reading a who's who entry, Mm -hmm. like for the cyclotron. I had no idea who the cyclotron is until I started reading that series in the, in, in the book. So it was, it's just so nice to be able to do this again, you know, just to, just to be able to go through it and going through it as with as much of a fine tooth comb as we will be. It's amazing. I'm sorry. Instead of just kind of reading it and being done with it. It's amazing when you think about it that, for one, the series got greenlit, but also that it lasted. And and honestly, it thrived. I mean, it was a popular book. Mm -hmm. And that it lasted as long as it did because it really was so far ahead of its time in that sense of being something that you had to kind of jump on at the beginning and pay attention. It wasn't like most other comics coming out at that time still owed back to the done-in-one way that comics had always been done, you know, where an issue came out, you know, you know, some big bad guy's doing something, he gets punched in the head by the hero, he goes to jail, that's the end of the issue. This was not like that. I mean, this built on itself, it referenced itself... And a whole lot of the series was Roy Thomas looking back at his childhood love of all-star comics and going, all right, let me fix that or let me reference that or let me put that in some sort of chronological context, whatever. Also, at the same time, using the backdrop of World War II and trying to actually reference that and tie it into actual historical events and real people and real... And man, what a juggling act, you know? Well, well, as we're really going to see in these first, especially, I would say, the first two years of this title, he tried to go, like, almost on a daily basis of the war. Yes. Following the timeline as closely as humanly possible. And doing something else, which I thought was kind of awesome, because, you know, at first I was worried, well, you know, All-Star Squadron, it's a great book, but, you know, the JSA, you know, it's in a bunch of issues, and and apparently Hawkman is the only character that, except for one issue, at least has a cameo in every single issue of All-Star Squadron, uh, because Hawkman was Roy Thomas' favorite character. To, uh, uh, in the JSA. In fact, uh, I have a note from the All-Star Companion about that, about why Hawkman looks the way he does in the beginning. But it really is a JSA book as well, especially this, this Zero issue, which features nothing but members of the Justice Society of America. 
But what he did is not only did he do the historical backdrop, he tried to make it fit in with those issues of All-Star Comics. Right. And, you know, Roy Thomas, and, and I've said this myself, and I, and I think you have, I can't remember, so I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but one of the things about reading a Roy Thomas book today is that it's very, very wordy. He very much subscribed to that Stan Lee idea of writing comic books. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but at the same time, you know, every character in the panel has to say something. You know, and and that can get a little clunky when you're reading it. But, the one thing that I will always respect and admire Roy Thomas for is that, damn it, continuity mattered to him. Yes. And it could have been the most obscure bit of continuity ever, but he'd find a way for everything to work. And I missed that. And it's one of the reasons why I've given up current comics and one of the reasons why I'm reading my old books. Because I love that. I love the footnotes. Because the footnotes in this series, again, we're going to be getting to them, sometimes if it couldn't fit in the little box on the bottom of the, of the page, he'd have like a whole footnote section in the, te- in the letters column. Right. And... I think I'm right about this. All-Star Squadron, in the letters pages, is where the term retcon first yes. entered the fanboy lexicon. You're right. And it's just for all those reasons, this is such an amazing series that DC is not reprinted. I understand the reasons why they haven't reprinted it. I'm okay with that. It's a money issue. I understand that. doesn't matter. I have all the issues anyways. Someday maybe I'll buy an extra set and have it bound at like the library binding company or whatever just to have it on the shelf because that would be neat to have too because then you get the ads which trade paperbacks don't. But just it, it's just an amazing series that no one I don't think anybody has ever tried to do a podcast about it which is why we're setting ourselves up to be the definitive uh, podcast when it comes to this series and uh, and its spinoffs of Infinity Incorporated and Young All Stars, <laughs> and why the next few years are going to be really cool. I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and I you know I really want to uh, really want to bring the awesome with this and really cover this the way that I, I feel like it deserves to be covered because it really is a great series, and it's funny too that uh, I, I'm with you. I I don't think anybody has ever tried to cover at least not the way that we're going to cover it i'm sure that somebody out there has probably done some special one-off thing or or done an episode where they talked a lot about you know about it in one episode or something but as far as a series you know an episode by episode issue by issue breakdown uh, not that i'm aware of so I'm, i'm really looking forward to that but I know that this is, you know, a fan favorite. You know, a lot of people grew up with this, and a lot of people really enjoy it. So I'm, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm honored, but I'm also a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit scary to be playing with something that means so much to so many people. But we're really going to try to to do our absolute best. I think I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I think I'm going to. Um, you know, it's weird because I'm not. I have such mixed feelings about this because on one on one aspect, I've even noticed it as we've begun this episode. I feel like we need to be more uh, serious and more reverent, but at yeah. the same rate, you know, our our show. I think a lot of what has brought people in and kept people coming back 
is the funny that we try to bring every time. So I want to, I still want to try to do that too. But but we are, and there's going to be some clunkers in here. You know, as much as we love this series, I know when we get to issues 11 and 12, uh, with the storyline that goes on in that one, that we're both going to have a hard time. See, you remember it much better than I do if you can reference individual issues. Because other than like 25, which is the, the thing with uh, Infinity Inc., I, I can't think of what happens in a specific issue number. So you definitely have me beat there. The only thing I can think of as far as clunkers off the top of my head is that thing with the alien a little bit later, the one that looks like uh, Gem, son, son of Saturn. Now, Again, remembering that it's been 20 years since I've read these books, I just remember that story being a real clunker. But we'll see. We well, might get there and I might love it. So, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> that, that was the exact oh, okay. one I was <laughs> talking about. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, as, as, I've, as happened to me a lot of times in the past, you know, there, there's things we remember when we were kids reading or, or watching that we thought, wow, that was the shit. And then you see it 20 years later and you're like, I must have been stupid as a kid because that sucked. But on the flip side, you know, as as Chris Honeywell and I have discovered, like, say, with classic Star Trek, there were episodes I absolutely hated when I was a kid. I watch them now and I'm like, wow, that was really awesome. I'm, I just didn't get this. So I'm hoping that, you know, there'll be some of that, too. So who knows? I might end up loving that alien storyline. I don't know. I just remember at the time reading it and going, nah, I don't, I don't like this. But, this ain't for me. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh. Well, I know that we're both really itching to get into the uh, the episode proper as far as uh, covering the issues. So I just had a couple quick. Th- did, did you have anything else, Mike? No, that was pretty much it. I, I just, you know, again, you're right. It kind of sounded a little more serious than we usually are. But I just, I just had like a lot on my mind. I've been thinking about it literally all right. fucking day. Oh, and I, I know? definitely did not mean that as a criticism. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. It does feel more serious it feels big because this is a big moment in the show so no i i wasn't you know making any fun at all no it does feel like that it feels like a somber occasion but you know we'll we'll be serious about the the moment that we're at but yeah when when funny needs to be brought it'll be brought just like old times because yeah there 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 will still be you know these are comic books you know they lend themselves to you know, to funny bits and and being made fun of or, or lovingly poked fun at or whatever. So, and there ain't no shame in that. <laughs> um, speaking of somber and serious, you know, I know I've talked about this before, so I won't go too in depth about it. But um, I I am one of those people that that is a classic sufferer of I say shit before I've thought about it. And I know a lot of times I will say things and then later on I'll listen back to myself in, in a recording and I'll go, yikes, you know? And a couple episodes back, I remember saying something that afterwards I was like, wow, we might take some heat for that. I might take some heat for that. And uh, it was when we were talking and I was bitching about the way Superman is, por- or excuse me, Batman rather, is portrayed these days to where he is invincible and with five minutes preparation <laughs> to take down anybody from Galactus to Jesus Christ. And I was really nervous afterwards what kind of outcry there might be, 
you know, for the, if it seemed like I was somehow belittling or, or making, you know, because this undid the Beatles at one point, you know, the, the thing of, uh, you know, comparisons with Jesus Christ. So anyway, long story short, I uh, checked our Tales email today, and we got an email from, um, I God, I, I'm so sorry, I do not know how to pronounce your name. I tried to. E- I, I did message this person on Facebook and asked for a pronunciation guide, and evidently they have not checked their Facebook, so I have not gotten it. I'm going to guess that it is pronounced Jan Roman Picula from and 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 Shede. God, I, can't, I don't know. It's the Netherlands, anyways, where this person's from. We had talked when we were talking, you know, because you you cracked up, Mike, about the idea of Jesus fighting uh, oh, bats. Yes, and then yes, we, it I turned did. into this completely ridiculous discussion of they should do that book, they should do Batman versus Jesus, and we just went off on a on an alt tangent about it. And I said how awesome it would be if I had an ounce of talent and could actually Photoshop the old uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. And change it to Batman fighting fighting Jesus Christ. I will be damned if if Jan here didn't send me a photoshopped picture of Batman in the ring with Jesus Christ photoshopped from the old Superman versus Muhammad Ali. If you go to our forum for Two True Freaks, I've posted the picture up there. I also, if you go to my um, profile on Facebook, I have a link there. You've got to see this picture. It is bar none. The goddamn funniest thing I have seen all year. I laughed out loud for I don't know how long. when I And I was in English class of all places when I opened this up. So I start oh, laughing dear. like a lunatic. <laughs> And my classmates are looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with that dude? But I could not stop laughing. I think that every laughing. time we podcast. <laughs> I had tears running down my face. I was laughing so damn hard. So thank yeah. you so much for sending, for making that and sending that because it cracked me up. Scott can attest to my reaction to it. So I'm glad that uh, that it, it didn't go over where I, I got a bunch of hate mail or, or whatever. I was or trying to be bombs. funny with that, and I feel like I fell flat on my face. But or pipe um, bombs, or huh? Or pipe bombs? Or, yeah, pipe. Yeah, exactly. Or anything else that some people who are a little more extreme than others might. Oh yeah, yeah. I did not do. ask for Batman versus Muhammad because yeah, I don't need that. Oh yeah, we. So. <laughs> I don't want to die, Scott. So let's yeah, not even. Yeah, I don't about need it. anybody parking bomb. You know, trucks full of bomb. Or, you know, outside well, of my house you can, or anything. You can always be like the idiot that did Times Square that left the fucking keys in the car. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of them parking trucks full of bombs outside the Monsecor headquarters, <laughs> thing like that. Oh, but you see, the thing about Dufo is, though, that he, he wouldn't even know why he was being bombed, because he's got so many freaking enemies to begin with. <laughs> Most of them are disgruntled ex-employees, <laughs> like I plan to be one day. Um, I got two more things to say before uh, we get into All-Star Squadron, uh, as, as we call it, number zero. Is one, if you would like to see that blog that I did, because it's still up, I never took it down. Go to http colon backslash backslash 
the Perisphere, T-H-E-P-E-R-I-S-P-H-E-R-E dot blogspot.com. You got the first eight issues. My attempt, uh, one of the ideas I had was to do all-star dossiers where uh, I was going to do basically who's who entries and stuff like that of characters. Um, So uh, if you want to check that out, that's there. And two, I'd like to kind of reiterate the dedication that I, that I made on that, and, and I don't know if Scott feels the same way, so uh, if he has something to add. Absolutely. Take Absolutely. Um, these episodes are respectfully dedicated to Roy Thomas, the man without whom there would be no All-Star Squadron, and thus no podcast to celebrate it. Roy Thomas did more for the Earth 2 DC heroes than any other writer, and I hope we do right by his work. Acknowledgements also go out to Len Wein, the title's original editor, Rich Buckler, the original penciler, and finally... To Jerry Ordway, the group's first embellisher, and to me, the artist, when it comes to Earth 2 and DC's Golden Age heroes. They laid the groundwork for the team and deserve nothing but praise for their contributions. Amen. So, uh, I guess I'm up first. Right. Well, actually, I've got two more things real oh, okay. quick. Very good, very good. Um, hey, hey. It's, it's our show. Um, I'm just living in it. You guys get out there right now. Get off your asses. Get out there. Get yourselves a copy of Roy Thomas's Alter Ego magazine. The current issue just came out. It's number 93, and it is all about Earth 2. And I have not had a chance to read I literally just got this a day or two ago, so I have not had a chance to read it yet. But one of the things I found absolutely amazing about this and I thought was really, really cool is it gives a breakdown of the individual Earth 2 characters, like, say, Jay Garrick, or I'm flipping through here real quick, uh, Alan Scott, um, Al Pratt, the Spectre, um, just you know all these different heroes. And uh, what I really noticed was when it gets to the Wonder Woman story, this is all that stuff. Um, that we were talking about and alluding to when it comes to Wonder Woman, this is the stuff that we ended up skipping over, you know, those World War II adventures of Wonder Woman in the Wonder Woman title, you know, the Earth 2 Wonder Woman set in World War II, stuff like that. But it, it's all these stories. It's stuff um, right from the resurrection of the JSAers, you know, when they started to appear in comics again after that lull, right up until... You know, Crisis on Infinite Earth. So it's it's giving you where you can find more stories of these individual JSAers. And there's just all kinds of, of great content in here. And the next issue will be uh, touching on, you know, like uh, their uh, revival in All-Star Comics, their adventures in Adventure Comics, and then eventually going right into All-Star Squadron and stuff like that. So I just uh, I thought it was relevant to point this out because I'm not a regular subscriber to Alter Ego, but uh, I'm really, really looking forward to reading this stuff just because it's so relevant to what we're talking about right now. So uh, just get to your... add, mm-hmm. just to add something really quick to that, Scott, head over to, to tomorrow's.com, which is the home site for Tomorrow's Publishing that puts out. Um, that puts out this uh, that puts out alter ego, and download the digital copies of alter egos six, eight, twelve, fourteen, and twenty one, as they contain a kind of running history 
of the All-Star Squadron. I don't have those issues yet, uh, or I have some of them. They're just in storage right now, and I can't really get to them. But they're excellent, like, in-depth, minute detailing. Uh, One of them, which I do have handy, which I haven't gone through yet, uh, but I will bring to the show at some point, is um, an interview with Jerry Ordway by Roy Thomas. Oh, cool. Talking about the series. So, uh, like Scott said, Get Out, Alter Ego is a great title anyways. Uh, if you are a fan of Golden and Silver Age books, it's definitely something you want to be reading anyways. But yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to borrow those from Scott at some point to read, if he'll let me. I'll have to get a list of those issues you just rattled off, because I, I did pick up a collection of alter egos from somebody not long ago, and I have no idea what issues I actually have in there. So I'd be curious if I, if I have any of the ones that you just named, so I'll have to, I'll have to check on that. Lastly, um, one of the books that was originally slated for this program that we ended up um, – basically we, what we did was we moved it over to Back to the Bins because we found that while it is an absolutely awesome book, an awesome read that we really, really enjoyed talking about, it wasn't terribly JSA uh, relevant. It, it does yeah, tie in a little bit that. to – um, Earth 2, specifically the Earth 2 Superman, but uh, it, it didn't really have a whole hell of a lot to do with JSA. And that was uh, World's Finest number 271. So if you want to uh, hear Mike and I uh, just going on and on about how great a book that was, and it was truly a great book and a hell of a lot of fun to record the episode on that. Check or it out. You, it's... Or if you want to hear Mike drop the C-bomb, because he does. <laughs> That was uh, Back to the Bins number 58, so uh, check that out. It uh, it was a solid episode. I had a hell of a good time both reading the book and blabbing oh, on. Oh, man, that's about the, that's, that, was, that was what we needed to get back into the groove, I think. <laughs> I really felt that that put us back where we needed to be and really set this series up because we're going to be gushing over Rich Buckler here, too. Yes, So, so yes. there you go. <laughs> So I'm going to shut up now, and you can uh, go ahead and dive into your issue, sir. All righty. This is actually Justice League of America number 193, which has an awesome story in it to begin with, just to tell you. It's the whole thing about the the ultimate origin, Red Tornado revealed, great art by George Perez. But inside, like, DC did this a lot in this era, and... Uh, my first note, which I'll actually do before the synopsis, is that this was a really awesome era for DC Comics. Yes. Um, after New Teen Titans number one came out and the Legion started exploding in popularity around 1980, 1981, DC really started getting its confidence back as a company. And with Jeanette Kahn being the president and publisher and with Paul Levitz taking a, a, a firm-handed editorial and Dick Giordano uh, being like the executive editor. I forget what his title was. DC started taking chances on concepts that probably wouldn't have gotten a fair shake if it wasn't for the people running the company at the time. And one of the great things they did is that they would do 16-page preview books. Actually, it breaks down to about 14 pages because they would have a cover and an ad for the first issue. But it would be in a title like Justice League of America, I, I, I feel, I don't have statistics to prove this, but I always felt like it was a solid seller. 
Like this was a book that was, you know did well on the newsstands and had a you know a legion of fans, no pun intended, around it. That you know this is this would be something that they would preview a book in. Or good ex- another good example is having Blue Devil previewed in Fury of Firestorm because that title took off like a rocket as well. So inside, halfway through the book, you have a wonderful cover. Uh, faux cover uh, done by Buckler and Giordano of the Justice Society at the time, uh, including the Shining Knight, who is not a member of the JSA. <laughs> but there's notes on that. Um, and this particular issue or was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Rich Buckler and embellished by Jeremiah Ordway. Really tell there's some Jerry Ordway in this artwork, even in yes. the <laughs> He's very distinctive. So here we go. December 6th, 1941. The time is just past 10 o'clock at night, and a shadowy figure tells Harry Hopkins that the time has come. Harry asks the man if he is certain and is informed that it may be past time. He sends out the call to the Justice Society of America, but that call goes unanswered. Meanwhile, three time zones away in Southern California, newsreel photographer Johnny Chambers and his assistant Tubby, gotta love the Golden Age Watts, film Green Lantern, The Flash, and Wonder Woman running in the Race of the Century, a charitable event for the March of Dimes. And they are filming this for Sees All Tells All News. Wonder Woman wins and receives a trophy from Wildcat, who is standing in for heavyweight champ Ted Grant, who has a cold. When the audience becomes a little rowdy, the Flash and Wonder Woman leave with Green, with Green Lantern and meet at Los Angeles's Echo Park for a late-night picnic. Their meal is interrupted by Solomon Grundy, who claims to know the heroes despite the fact that they have never seen him before. Even with their combined power, Grundy defeats the heroes preparing to kill Green Lantern. A voice tells him not to, or he will pay the penalty, and Grundy reluctantly agrees. Back at the White House, the man in shadow continues his quest to contact the JSA. Harry suggests that they may want to get in touch with a new group of heroes, known as the Law's Legionaries. His suggestion is shot down, and the quest for the JSA continues. An hour later, in New York City, New York City! <laughs> Wesley du- I gotta do it every time. Get the rope. <laughs> Wesley Dodds, Ted Knight, and Johnny Thunder... Watch world-famous Libby Lawrence on Wes's newfangled television. Wes wonders if he should zip over to JSA headquarters to see if any urgent calls have come in before spotting a pirate ship flying outside his window. Wes and Ted are quickly changed into their identities of the Sandman and Starman, while Johnny summons his magical thunderbolt to investigate. Once on the ship, the heroes are attacked by the crew. The fight goes in the heroes' favor until the ship's captain, Sky Pirate arrives and puts them to sleep with his ancient-looking gas gun. Fifteen minutes later, Dr. Dr. Fate sees that his old enemy, Wotan, is flying towards his tower in Salem, Massachusetts. Despite being less powerful than before, Dr. Fate flies towards Wotan only to collide with his Justice Society teammate, the Spectre. Wotan soon appears and gloats that he had tricked the heroes into seeing their most hated enemies, thus knocking each other unconscious. On a volcanic island, 
uh, off near Hawaii, Ensign Rod Riley, secretly the firebrand, tries to persuade his sister Danette to leave with him before the volcano erupts. Danette refuses, but thanks her brother for taking his, uh, talking his naval buddies into dropping him off for the visit. At the same time, in Gotham City, at the opening of a new USO club, Superman, Batman, and Robin are attacked by the garishly dressed Professor Zodiac. Batman and Robin rush to face him, but Zodiac tosses a few drops of liquid at them, which seemingly turns the dynamic duo into infants. When Superman flies at the villain, Zodiac produces his Philosopher's Stone. The stone weakens Superman because it's coated with kryptonite, allowing Zodiac to capture the heroes with ease. In Washington, the Atom, Dr. Midnight, and Hawkman visit the Lincoln Memorial. The Atom suggests that they might want to get back to their hotel room when Dr. Midnight pushes them out of the way from the beams of a death ray. The heroes turn to find the monster firing at them. The monster charges at them, and despite defeating Hawkman and Dr. Midnight, the Atom manages to get the drop on him. The Atom demands to know why he attacked them, and as the monster transforms into a frail old man, he says the word, Dagaton. The Justice Society members are shocked to see the old man disappear in a flash of light. A short distance away, a strange figure in a trench coat watches the battle and listens intently to what the heroes are discussing before turning around to walk away, his feet making a strange metallic sound on the concrete. The clock strikes midnight, and in the White House, the shadowy figure, revealed to be President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, announces that time has run out. Harry asks him if he is certain that the JSA are so desperately needed. Roosevelt reminds Harry that he has read the decoded message that they've learned that the Japanese will deliver to the Secretary of State tomorrow. The message was complete enough for Roosevelt to know that this means war. And now that you've sampled the action, get ready for the main event in All-Star Squadron number one. <laughs> ah. um, I want to... One of the great things about doing this series is that, I, like I mentioned, I have All-Star Companion number uh, volume two, which has a fully annotated uh, index of this series. So for historical purposes, uh, you mind if I run through those first, Scott? Sure. Okay, this story was a 16-page, counting the cover, 14 pages of story and an ad for the first issue preview that took place in JLA number 193. Behind the cover of Justice League Volume 1 number 193 was a house ad that promoted the then-upcoming All-Star Squadron, uh, which says, In coming this summer, All-Star Squadron and an exciting sword and sorcery series, which I believe was either Arian... Or Arak. I'm not quite sure. Hmm. Could be either one. Uh, instead of Starman, as I mentioned, the Shining Knight appears on the cover of this preview issue. The Knight was never a member of the JSA. Roy Thomas, Len Wein, and letterer Gas- Gasper Saladino worked together to create the logo of the All-Star Squadron. Their model was the logo appearing in All-Star Comics 43-57. to Apparently, Roy made certain a hyphen was inserted into All-Star, though apparently other writers and editors have left it out on occasion. Where the S in Squadron went from looking like a backward Z to a more curved S. Uh, The March of Dimes race between Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, and Flash was inspired by the wraparound cover for Comic Cavalcade No. 1, cover date December 1942, January 1943. 
Solomon Grundy first faced off against the Alan Scott Green Lantern in All-Star Comics number 61, October 1944, in the stories Fighters Never Quit. Wotan first fought Dr. Fate in More Comics, More Fun Comics number 55, May 1940. That was also Dr. Fate's first appearance in The Menace of Wotan. Sky Pirate's final Golden Age battle with Green Lantern took place in Comic Cavalcade number 25, February, March 48, in the story The Roof of the World. The USO gig that Superman and Batman and Robin attended was inspired by the cover of World's Finest Comics number 6, Summer 1942, uh, where Superman's got his hand around a uh, Navy man and Robin is shaking hands with an army officer, it looks like. Professor Zodiac, also known as the Alchemist, made his first appearance in All-Star Comics number 42, August-September 48, in the story The Man Who Hated Science. And finally, of the villains that the JSA went up against uh, before their time in this issue, The Monster made his first appearance in All-Star Comics number 20, Spring 1944, in the story The Movie That Changed a Man's Life. In one panel... Rich Buckler apparently drew Robot Man looking at the famous statue of the U.S. flag raising on Iwo Jima. (laughs) This is a bit of an anachronism, (laughs) since that statue was based on a photo that wouldn't be taken until 1945. Roy Thomas had Ordway alter it to the Washington Monument. (laughs) Um, Roy made his own gaffe in that panel by having Robot Man brace against the chill of the late autumn wind, which wouldn't have bothered him since he was, you know, a robot. The superheroes in this story were drawn and colored to match the look of the characters from their appearances circa 1941-42. The exceptions to this were Hawkman wearing his 1946-era helmet, a personal quirk of Roy Thomas. The red instead of orange lapels on the Atom, Len Wein insisted on this, and Dr. Midnight's copper-colored gloves and boots, and the Shining Knight's chest insignia. Danette Riley shared a first name with the birth name of Roy Thomas's wife, Dan Thomas, who was also a redhead. The Harry speaking to President Roosevelt is, as I mentioned, Harry Hopkins, who is one of Roosevelt's closest advisors. In addition to being one of the architects of the New Deal and directing the Works Progress Administration, he was also one of the President's chief diplomatic troubleshooters during World War II and was a key policymaker for the Lynn Least program that sent aid to the Allies. For those Somebody's of, been looking at Wikipedia because I've got almost the same exact note on Harry Hopkins. <laughs> I think I did look at Wikipedia when I was writing this three years ago. For those of you who may not know, heavyweight Ted, heavyweight champ Ted Grant couldn't attend the race of the century because he was already there in his guise as Wildcat. Uh, the Law's Legionnaires were also known as the original Seven Soldiers of Victory. This story takes place before Wonder Woman was made part of the Justice Society in All-Star Comics number 13, October 1942, after the events of Shanghai Into Space. In that book, they invite Wonder Woman to be their secretary. Good going, guys. Professor Zodiac uses kryptonite against Superman to capture the Man of Steel. This predates Superman's first comic book exposure to the element, which took place in Superman number 61. The story was called Superman Returns to Krypton, where the rock was originally colored red. And those are all my footnotes. And that's one to grow on. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I've, 
I figured I've been yakking enough. You go through your notes before I go through mine. All right. Well, my biggest note on this one is that, no joke, Justice League of America number 193 is one of my all-time favorite single issues of comic books ever, largely for sentimental reasons. This was one of the earliest comic books I bought for myself as a as a kid. All of uh, well, I would have been all of thirteen when I got serious about collecting comics, and I bought it mainly for the awesome, awesome George Perez cover on this because it's got everybody. Mm-hmm. It's got this. It's got this giant tornado dude. You know, he, he literally looks like he's a, a whirling mass of wind given some vague human form. You've got green air, uh, green lantern shooting him in the face. You've got Firestorm shooting him in the body. You've got Wonder Woman trying to lasso him. You've got the Flash dodging lightning bolts. And then you've got my favorite, Superman, zipping right through the middle of the guy. And it just pulled me in wherever it was I bought this wherever it was I saw this it just floored me and inside and I'm not going to go through the story because it's not relevant to this discussion but it's just a it, it's just one of my favorites I love this story I love the art I I could be wrong but I think this may have been my first exposure to George Perez or at least it was my first exposure to him at DC and it just blew me away. I love his Aquaman. I love his Superman. It, it's just, I can't mm-hmm. describe the emotions I have whenever I flip back through this because it's just always been one of my favorites. And uh, and I really, really love And it's not a bad story either, but I mean, it's uh, a lot of it's art reasons. And then you get to the all-star preview in the middle, and I can remember this both thrilling me and kind of confusing me a little bit as a kid because I wasn't really sure who a lot of these people were. I'm sure that it was, was my first exposure to at least a couple of them anyway. Um, but I, I really love the, the introduction, how this sets everything up. And, yeah, the art team is just fantastic. I mean, Rich Buckler knocks it out of the park and then you know jerry ordway just you know he he gives that little bit extra just to jazz it up i mean wonder woman seldom looked so good as she does in this she's she's cute and attractive yes and feminine which is everything i think wonder woman should be and so often she's not she's she just doesn't ever seem to really you know she might get one or two of the features you know she might look feminine or she might look powerful but seldom do you see her where she's got all three where she's feminine she's powerful but she's good looking too i don't see that a lot with wonder woman or at least i didn't back then but wow she's really attractive in this and that's important for someone who's supposed to embody you know the perfect woman um i can't help but note on page one of the preview on the, let's see here, it's the sixth panel where the gun is going off to start the race. <laughs> That's Woozy Winks's shirt, isn't it? It looks like it. You're absolutely it right. sure is. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. I'm sure it's just somebody with a similar shirt, but it sure does look like Woozy Winks's arm. Um, so this, uh, according to the way the story reads, this looks like this would have been 
Wildcat's first meeting with at least a, a couple of these people here? Probably. Cool. He's very happy that Ted Grant caught a cold. <laughs> he just so. wants to be able to put hands on Wonder Woman like he does in that well, one. Wouldn't you? I mean, oh, seriously. Hell yeah. Now, on a first, uh, my first impression reading this, because sometimes my mind tends to wander and I forget what year this is supposed to be set in. They, uh, when uh, Starman, Sandman, and uh, Johnny Thunder look out the window and they see this uh, glowing, flying Spanish galleon flying through the sky, I thought, you know, Peter Pan. Why don't they think of Peter Pan? Or why doesn't anybody reference Peter Pan? Well, Peter Pan wouldn't come along until 1950, you know, the movie anyway, the, yeah. the, the Disney flick, wouldn't come along until 1953, which is quite a long ways down the road from where this is at. I had a note here, and I think it is the president that says it. Let me see. Yes. <laughs> On the last page of the story, page 14, fifth panel, uh, Harry says, uh, he says, are you certain? Are you really certain they'll be needed so soon? And then the next panel is the fifth panel, and it, where he reveals who the mysterious shadowy figure is. He says, Mr. President. And the president says, you've readed the decoded message, <laughs> which we've learned, and blah, blah, blah. And he goes on, it's just a typo, but it, it's funny. It just reads funny because it should say, you've read, but it says, you've readed. And I thought that was very funny. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I had to look this hairy guy up because I don't know if it gives his last name in this story, but I know it does by next issue. And I was assuming when he kept saying Harry that he was referencing Harry Truman, and it turns out that it was the guy you were talking about, Harry uh, Harry Hopkins, wh who was a, a real live human being. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, Truman was either still in Congress or the Senate at this point. He wasn't um, he wasn't FDR's vice president yet. Ah, uh, okay. Cool. That is honestly about all I've got on this, besides the fact that uh, I love it. I just love it. I love groups of superheroes i love large groups of superheroes i love large groups of superheroes when a bunch of them are obscure or second stringers that maybe they don't carry their own title maybe they can't carry their own title but this is their time to shine and now granted that's not necessarily what this first story is because this is pretty much the big important guys. You know, you got your Superman, your Batman, your Green Lantern, your Flash, but this is where the series would go because right here they all get taken out. Mm -hmm. so the guys that we're going to see come along are going to be those lower tier guys I'm talking about. I am a total sucker for superhero teams made up of the guys that just don't get as much of the spotlight. And uh, that is one of the major reasons why I love All-Star Squadron. So I'm I'm itching to get into that stuff. That's all I got. My personal notes for the show, not the ones that I just copied out of a book. Uh, though I still felt they were interesting to bring up. I like how, even by just showing one of the characters on a television screen, that Roy is introducing the main players even out of their costumes mm -hmm. of the people, because let, let's face it, we're not really revealing anything here. Uh, as much as Roy loves the JSA, this book was about Jesse Quick, I mean, uh, uh, Liber uh, Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick. 
they to me were the stars of this book. Oh, really? Yeah, to me, eventually, they are the headliners. They're the ones that because they're the ones that are there for most of the the run. That's That's true. Constants. So, you know, they would bring in other people. They would occasionally bring in other JSA members. Though, uh, as we'll talk about in the weeks to come, Thomas really tries to put them where they were uh, at the time in the comic books in this series. So he kind of had to talk about the guys that didn't have the big careers. You know, the Johnny Quicks, the Liberty Bells, the Steels. The Shining Knights, uh, an original creation, Firebrand 2, and uh, Robot Man. So, and Robot Man gets like several series about him. So, I like him. Uh, yeah, I like him too. But that's the reason why I like him so much is because they are the quote unquote second stringers of the Golden Age, and he just weaves them into the story. And if uh, blink and you'll miss them, really I- and truly. Would you go so far as to say that that is one of the uh, you know the quote unquote secret formulas of why All Star Squadron works and why it's so good is that he didn't play with the predictable big guys that that he focused on the littler guys? I would agree with that, and I would add that it's why when Superman showed up, it was a big deal. Yes, or when Batman and Robin were in a story, it was really really cool. It's which it, which it like. should be. Yeah. So by not having them there every issue, that makes it awesome. You right. know, Jay Garrick didn't show up all that often. Hawkman, like I said, because it was Roy Thomas's, had the most screen time, but you really didn't see Doctor Fate all that often after issue, I would say, six or seven, somewhere around there. I don't have it. Again, I, I'm, I haven't read ahead because I'm really trying to keep it week to week with the two issues we'll be covering. Right. But, uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd say that that's the reason that this series works so well. Because you can do so much more with characters that don't have a lot of backstory to them in the beginning. You know, it's why Justice League International did so well for as long as it did. Because Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis and eventually Gerard Jones over in Justice League Europe was playing with people that pretty much didn't have their own titles. So you could have things happen to them, and they're the ones that you can put into jeopardy and have the audience care about them. Right. Which is why, you know, you know Jay Garrick's not going to die, but damn, what about Johnny Quick? What about Liberty Bell? What about what happens between the two of them, which becomes something, for me, kind of one of the little... Well, I'm a sucker for romances to begin with, but that's entirely beside the point. But yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I like that when Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, and Wonder Woman, uh, Diana Prince, are all sitting and having a picnic, you know, she, <laughs> where is this? I, um, you really left a, uh, Green Lantern asks, you really left a virtual paradise to come to the U.S. in these troubled times? Yes, it was because of, and Flash says, don't tell me, I, I can guess, a man, right? His name is Steve Trevor, a captain in your Army Air Force. But how did you... I'm supposed to be swift, remember? I hope that doesn't make you two change your minds about spending the evening with me. I haven't found anyone else I can talk to about being different. And that's when Alan Alan Scott says, Flash and I have ladies of our own, Princess, so we're all just friends, okay? I feel a lot of sexual tension in this scene, don't you? Yes, I do. It's like Alan Scott saying that not to tell her not to worry about it, but to remind himself that he has a girlfriend. 
He's playing hard to get because he wants to get her into a three-way with his girlfriend. Oh. <laughs> or with his best friend. That'll work, too. Oh God! There's so many ways we could go there, but I'm not. I'm just going to move on. I, I, th- I think there's probably some slash fiction out there about this. Um, I like Solomon Grundy, just in general. So it was cool seeing him here. Uh, really liked the mention of the Law's Legionaries, which brings, sh- which is the Shining Knight, um, kind of foreshadowing of the issue. Yeah. Uh, Wesley Dodds has a television, and that was really rare in 1941. Well, he's filthy, stinking rich, too. This is actually stealing one of my notes from Next Issue, but that's totally cool. That uh, Let me see, what did I write about that? Um, yeah, nice observation that TVs were still a plaything of the wealthy uh-huh. uh, at this time in American history. Because in Next Issue, there's a, one of our characters will actually make a reference to the fact of, hey, you know, this Wesley Dodds guy has one of those newfangled TVs. You know, he must be rich and eccentric or something to that effect, which which would be true that, you know, the average American, you know, had to save up to buy one of these things in the 50s. You know, it'd be, it'd be much later before common people started to, to have television, but they were around. Um, we got the half-helmeted Dr. Fate, which uh, Roy Thomas would eventually explain. Uh, <laughs> that sounds so rude. Series. He needs some the half-helmeted. Get Dr. Fate some Viagra so he can be fully helmeted. <laughs> so he can be fully helmeted. Um, I, think you, I, I don't know if you mentioned this in your notes, but this is the first appearance of Danette Riley. Uh-huh. Uh, one of us mentioned it, so she... Uh, Off-air we did, yeah. Yeah, she will be a character to watch. Uh, love seeing Superman, Batman, and Robin from this era together in any context. So yes. that was kind of cool. I love that, as we've discussed on the show before, Buckler decides to draw Batman's bat at an angle instead of circular. Just looks a lot better. And it's really from that time period, too. So, uh, but <laughs> my favorite part of that scene uh, with Professor Zodiac, who is, I guess, another person I can put on the list of uh, comic book characters I could conceivably cosplay as, <laughs> um, is that he throws the few drops of his elixir of youth and Robin goes, Batman, we're, I know. <laughs> that just made me laugh. Um, really cool to see Dr. Midnight looking so awesome here. I have to say, uh, Buckler draws a great Dr. Midnight. Uh, it's interesting to see the monster, because this is a type of character, you know, with exceptions to the Hulk, this is the type of villain we would see again and again in comics, in both Marvel and DC, so that was kind of cool. And uh, I like the fact that the headline for December 7th, 1941 for the Washington Globe was National Rail Strike Begins Today. Yeah. It's like, oops, okay. (laughs) But that's all I got for this one. Um, And like you, just love it. Just love it completely. Uh, We do have some ads in this, uh, which I think is awesome. Because there is a hostess ad. We've got two of them, folks. Sweet! Uh, we've got a Bubble Yum's got the number yum taste. Pass it on. <sighs> um, looks like a some kind of game called Attack of the Mutants. Um, <laughs> I, I have no idea what that is. I we talked about that on Two True Freaks not long ago. Because that ad was everywhere in comics of this of this era. 
So we've got going through the preview again because there were no ads in the preview. Would have ruined it. I would have complained, which isn't true at all. I'm just trying to kill for time. Um, we got some little girl sleeping in a lifesaver sleeping bag. That makes me feel uncomfortable to look at for too long because, again, Benson and Stabler are going to break down my freaking door. Why are you watching little girl sleep? Where is that? Is that after the preview? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. And there is a Dungeons and Dragons adventure on the back inside cover. These were these would become This looks like it was drawn by a 12-year-old. Is this the one with the dripping Yeah, it is. It's the dripping green slime. Don't touch it. <laughs> it's certain death. <laughs> look out, it's dripping. Doesn't that look like it was drawn by like like a like a kid just figuring things out. My kids can draw better than this. They can. <laughs> I could draw better than this, actually, and that's saying something. Yeah, I I couldn't, but I it's have on the, the I have the oh the back cover is Radical Jocks, the shoe named for you. What? That's what it says. Yeah. It's not named for me. If it was named for me, it'd be sits on the couch. <laughs> sits on the couch. <laughs> that's my Indian name. Uh, I thought it was plays with yourself. Oh, um, that was my Indian name when I was a youngster. <laughs> Little pocket pool there. Um, <laughs> we've got a we've got a hostess ad <gasps> across from page eight. Oh, it's that awesome green uh, green arrow one, isn't it? Yes. Yes. So, oh god, who's who's to... doing what? Um, I'll let you be green arrow. And oh, he's a the... dick. You be green okay, arrow. Okay, I'll be. You're much more much more used to being a dick than I am. So. <laughs> Anybody want to co-host? I'll sell a, a chopped liver. Anybody want to stop it and step in to be chopped liver? Yeah. Okay, so we have Green Arrow in an arrow in time. So Green Arrow is looking at a cable car going across a line. The cables, he screams. The tram will fall. No wonder the kids are scared. I would be too. <laughs> so he puts a bunch of freaking like hook arrows one job at a time first a few wraparound grappling arrows that'll hold on to the cable car temporarily next something to keep the kids minds off of the cable card he shoots them a bunch of hostess fruit pies wow hostess fruit pies mine's apple light tender crust real fruit filling this one's cherry hostess fruit pies are almost as much fun as being rescued by green arrow thanks for the rescue green arrow and thanks for the hostess fruit pies Glad my efforts were on target. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. Um, does that one kid in the middle there that got, that has the cherry one look like O.J. Simpson, or is it just me? <laughs> he, does. he does. He looks exactly like O.J. from that from that one where he's selling the dingo boots, hawking yes. dingo boots. Dingo uh, it's boots. Excellent. <laughs> now, on first glance... This seems to be yet another one of those ones where you go, well, damn, there's nothing stupid I can really rip on or make fun of this. But then it hit me, there totally is. Okay. All right. Rather than taking a chance, and he says it himself, one at a time, one job at a time, and he shoots a few of his... All right, for one thing, what the hell is a wraparound grappling arrow? How do you shoot an arrow that wraps around anything? Arrows go in a straight line, don't they? And they hit their target... How, how does it? Yeah. Okay. So, ignoring that bit of stupidity for just a moment, 
he's taking a great risk that the other cable, because this is uh, it's hanging by two cables, and the first one snaps. That's what starts the crisis. But it's still hanging by one cable. <laughs> you use the term crisis there really loosely, by the way. Crisis in fruit pies. Yeah, that was the untalked about <laughs> crossover that jeopardized Earth. All right, why doesn't he just hit his signal device and call in Superman? I mean, I know all these guys have an inferiority complex. I mean, it must suck being on a team with the most powerful freaking guy on the planet. But come on, you know, do the right thing, Green Arrow. Don't put a bunch of kids' lives in risk just because you got to prove how awesome you are with your stupid arrows. Hit the friggin' signal device and call in Superman to save these kids before they plummet <laughs> to a gruesome death. All right. <laughs> That's great. Oh man. Do you agree or do Yes, you, I agree with you yeah. completely. This this isn't something that Green Arrow should handle on his own. Right. Because how is he gonna a... explain that if he's wrong? He's <laughs> just he's just shot the second of like the fifteen grappling arrows that he, he ended up shooting to save the cable car. He's in the middle of chalking up or whatever they call it, knocking up the third one, and the cable snaps and the kids plummet to their death. How's he gonna explain that at the next JLA meeting? Because you know Superman's going to look him dead in the eye and go, why the hell didn't you just call me? I could have been there in like a nanosecond, right? Jackass. I could have been there, rescued the kids, and been back in my Clark Kent clothes before they hit the floor. What the hell? Uh, one last thing for this issue is uh, it was something I did for the Parasphere that I, I want to continue here is a memorable quote. Uh, I'd And the quote for this this Zero issue is, I'd hope to have the powerful Justice Society with their formidable power standing by, forming some sort of all-star squadron to help out in the present emergency. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Is that in this issue? That is in this issue. Where is that? Last page. Okay, is it that? All right, it's that one because that sounds an awful lot like the yeah. one that he delivers next issue as well. So That's I'm sorry, okay. I wasn't trying to be a prick. No, I. Uh, now, do you have one picked out for next issue? Because if you don't, I've got a hum freaking dinger for the next one. Well, we can always do both. Okay, can we, we will. have both? Because I I love a line that I that I noticed in here. I was like, ooh, I have used that very line myself. So <laughs> looking forward to getting to that one. All right, are you ready to get into that one? Oh, are we ready? Okay, yes, I am more than ready. I'm telling you, I'm so ready to get into that. Okay, this is All-Star Squadron number one. Now, how long have you waited to hear us say that? We are there, folks. This is the September 1981 premiere issue. Awesome cover on it by Rich Buckler and Dick Giordano depicting Dr. Midnight. Hawkman and the Atom, looking at just a ton of photographs of all these different heroes. And I'm not going to name them all, but there's a ton of them. I mean, you got you got your Superman, your Batman and Robin, Doctor Fate, Green Arrow, Wonder Woman. Then you've got some really truly obscure people, like you got Captain Triumph, you got Tarantula, you've got uh, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. Just a ton of characters. I really, really like. I wish so badly that somebody would make like a, a T-shirt out of this cover because I've always loved this cover. And it says, "Who will be the heroes of the All Star Squadron?" And at the bottom, it says, "The answer will astound you." And uh, 
This one is, is of course, written and co-created by Roy Thomas, penciled and co-created by Rich Buckler. The inker embellisher is Jeremiah Ordway. Letter John Costanza, uh, Carl Gafford is the colorist and edited by the legendary Lynn Ween. Story is entitled The World on Fire. It is late evening on the evening of December 6th. The year is 1941, and the setting is the world of Earth 2. We open to a stunning title splash page of Hawkman wearing his freakish yet still pretty cool-looking beaked helmet, racing through the nighttime skies of Manhattan. His destination? The meeting rooms of the JSA, because the JSA had not... uh, They don't yet have their own permanent headquarters. Flying in through the open window, Hawkman is attacked by a mysterious boa constrictor-like something. Hawkman, in classic Hawkman style, hits first and and asks questions later. Snapping on the lights, the mysterious snake-like something turns out to be... The arm of the pliable policeman, Plastic Man. Reeling from Hawkman's punch, Plastic Man reports that he's on a mission from Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself to find out why the JSA can't answer the goddamn phone. Funny, Hawkman says, <laughs> Wesley Dodds was supposed to... Yeah, I told you we'd bring the funny. Funny, Hawkman says, Wesley Dodds was supposed to be there for that, and where could he have gotten off to? So Plastic Man slaps on the radio, and the two hear a series of news reports that basically recap all the fights that we uh, heard about in the preview. Solomon Grundy having taken down Wonder Woman, Flash, and GL. Professor Zodiac overpowered and captured Superman, Batman, and Robin. And the disappearance of Starman, Sandman, and Johnny Thunder aboard the mysterious flying Spanish galleon. Hawkman himself relates to Plastic Man the story of how he, uh, Dr. Midnight, and the Atom fought the monster at the Lincoln Memorial and how the villain vanished when he was defeated. He also tells of how the monster pulled a weird hide-to-Jekyll-style transformation and then uttered the word Degaton. Fully recapped, the two heroes set out to collect Midnight and the Atom and report to the president. Along the way, they are attacked by a bizarre flying foe, the King Bee. And kind of imagine this guy. Kind of looks, uh, to me anyway, I thought he looked a lot like the human fly from uh, from Spider-Man. And his henchman, who look similar to him. I, I've read this somewhere today, later on, after I wrote this recap. It, they were called the... Oh, crap. Now I can't remember. I should have written it down. But they actually have a name. It's like the Hornet Men or something like that. Anyway, Hawkman takes out uh, several of the minions who pull the same fast fate as the monster did when he was defeated. But when he attempts to apprehend King Bee himself, the villain literally explodes, taking out Hawkman. Quick thinking by Plastic Man, who acts as a parachute, saves the Winged Wonder, and they, uh, but they are both knocked unconscious by the fall. At the White House, Harry Hopkins receives a report that not only can they still not get the JSA on the horn, but now Plastic Man's gone missing. So he orders his men to keep trying, or Sunday, December 7th, 1941, is liable to go down as the most tragic day in America's history. Meanwhile, flying high over the Hawaiian Islands, one of my favorite characters of this entire series, Sir Justin, the uh, Shining Knight, rides his valiant winged steed, Victory. 
Sir Justin ponders his place in this modern world of the 1940s and briefly recaps his origin of how he came from Arthurian times to be encased in ice and has only recently awakened after 1,500 years. His recollections are interrupted by a smoldering volcano below, and he descends to investigate. Once on the island, he comes across Danette Riley, volcanologist, and the two set out to investigate the, quote, something funny that appears to be going on here. Sir Justin's invincible sword carves open a hidden cavern, and upon entering, the pair are quickly taken out by Solomon Grundy and Professor Zodiac. They awaken a short time later at the foot of the throne of Degaton, master of worlds and time, while Grundy, Zodiac, Wotan, and the Sky Pirate look on. Per Degaton tells Sir Justin that he has come from the future to conquer the world from the year 1947. Meanwhile, remember, by the way, that it is uh, 1941. So meanwhile, it is nearly 8 a.m. on the island of Oahu at a place called Pearl Harbor, where we find Danette's brother, Rod, uh, being driven back to base by his fellow serviceman buddy named Slugger. Rod, as his conversation with Slugger reveals, was actually the costume mystery man known as Firebrand. So as the two talk and Slugger asks about Rod's hot redheaded sister, the friend suddenly <laughs> suddenly spot a bunch of planes swooping in. And with horror, they realize that these are Japanese bombers. The attack on Pearl Harbor has begun. Among the many casualties, Rod Riley, the firebrand, and his pal Slugger. So in Washington, D.C., Dr. Midnight and the Atom attend a football game at Griffith Stadium. Midnight, concerned with the unusual number of VIPs that he's heard summoned over the PA system, tells the Atom that they need to check on the situation. They run across Ed Simmons, an acquaintance of Midnight's, who also happens to be a top dog in the FBI. Ed brings the two JSAers in on a three-way call with FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI's main agent in Hawaii, who informs them of the still-happening attack. Hoover also tells the JSA boys that the president has been trying to reach you assholes all night. So in the only part of the issue I have a problem with, the Adam is in a big fat hurry to leave and can't get the door open. So a tall, mysterious figure says that he can, and removing his clothes and his false face, Robot Man stands revealed. Now, I love that. No, don't get me wrong. It's the part with the door that makes absolutely no sense. Why the hell didn't they just go back out the way they came in? I don't get this whole thing with it. Really, all it is, it just gives Robot Man an excuse to rip the door off the hinges to show how cool he is. That That's fine. It's just, it reads very wonky. Anyhow, after giving the JSAers the briefest of explanations, I'm a robot with a human brain. Robot Man snaps, uh, snaps up the pair, puts them on his shoulders, and makes like Steve Austin all the way across town to the White House. Where, just outside the gate, Johnny Chambers, ace cameraman for Sees All Tells All News, and Libby Lawrence, famous radio war correspondent, bump into each other and meet for the first time. Chambers, instantly taken with Lawrence, seems to know a hell of a lot about her how her dad was killed by the Nazis and how she eventually wound up at Dunkirk only to be forced to swim the English Channel to escape. The reports witness uh, 
the uh, excuse me, the reporters rather witness the mystery men begin to arrive. First, Robot Man, Doctor Midnight, and the Atom, and then eventually Hawkman and Plastic Man swoop in. So Chambers sneaks off to change to the speedster Johnny Quick, and Libby Lawrence becomes the costume heroine uh, Liberty Bell. Together, they blow past security to join the other heroes in the office of the President of the United States. But not before Liberty Bell and Johnny Quick, unbeknownst to one another, suss out each other's secret identities. FDR tells the group of the attack on Pearl Harbor and requests the mobilization of every single American costume hero into a single super powerful unit, an all-star squadron with Plastic Man serving as FBI liaison. The commander-in-chief dispatches the team to the West Coast in anticipation of an attack upon the mainland there, and after Liberty Bell places a call to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where she requests they ring the actual real Liberty Bell in order to charge up her powers, they are off. And then hours later, as night comes to San Francisco, a strange subsea supership the size of a small aircraft carrier disgorges several watertight planes which take to the skies over the sleeping city. Inside the submarine, Per Degaton gloats, December 7th, 1941, will not only be remembered for Pearl Harbor, but for the night the American mainland was attacked by the conqueror of time. Next issue... The Battle of San Francisco. And uh, I just want to say as my first and foremost note, now this, goddammit, is a superhero comic. Yeah, I no doubt. loved it. Oh, man. <clears throat> All right, let's get these historical annotations out of the way first. All right, Hawkman, the Atom, and Dr. Midnight appear on the cover studying the photos of Wildcat 1, Shining Knight with Winged Victory, Green Arrow, uh, I'm assuming Phantom Lady is there. It kind of looks like Phantom Lady, but I'm not quite sure. Where is that picture? Of uh, It's right above Johnny Quick, and if that's a dude's leg all that way up, then I'm very uncomfortable. So, <laughs> uh, Johnny Quick, Batman and Robin, Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy, Vigilante, Robot Man, Dr. Fate, Sandman, Superman, Crimson Avenger, Johnny Thunder and his Thunderbolt, Plastic Man, Liberty Bell, Tarantula, Flash, Captain Triumph, Spectre, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and the only Justice Society member circa 1941 not featured on the cover is Starman. What did they have against Starman? Mm-hmm. Also, Captain Triumph makes his one and only appearance in the series on this issue's cover. <laughs> the title of this story, and the song you are hearing right now, it was The World on Fire, which is reference to a recording that was apparently playing at the Pearl Harbor's PX at the time of the Japanese attack, and that's kind of apocryphal. And it has also been reported that the song was played over and over that night. Some of the lyrics include, I don't want to set the world on fire, I just want to start a flame in your heart. The version you're hearing is by a group called the Ink Spots. Uh, Per Dagaton's appearance in this story takes place between All-Star Comics number 35 
and his membership in the First Injustice Society of the World in All-Star number 37. Uh, the character of King B first fought the Justice Society in All-Star Comics number 18. There was a Washington Redskins game on December 7th, 1941. Uh, with quarterback Sammy Ball playing. The game was played at Griffith Stadium, and the Skins won 20-14 to over the Philadelphia Eagles. Sammy Ball's number 33 was eventually retired. So, there you go, Steve J. Rogers. Your one and only... <laughs> the one and only football sports reference that we will make... Uh, <laughs> Oh, was that football they were playing? Yeah, yeah, that was football they were playing. That's December, Scott. You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? No, don't know, don't care. Uh, In 1975, Roy Thomas created another World War II-based group at Marvel called the Invaders. In that title, Prime Minister Winston Churchill christened the group. So with the All-Star Squadron, Roy decided to have President Roosevelt name the team. And damn it, it feels better that way. Uh, <laughs> nothing against Prime Minister Churchill. Uh, there was a one-page text piece by Roy Thomas. If you head on over to uh, theparosphere.blogspot.com, click on issue one, there is a transcript of it, because I doubt you guys want me to read that right now. This episode is long enough as it is. <laughs> but I typed it out, so there you go. If you don't have the issue. Uh, notes. I'll start off on this one since you did the synopsis. I love that splash page, even though I'm not a big Hawkman fan. Mm -hmm. That is an awesome piece of artwork. (laughs) Now, what do you think about the the Beaks helmet thing? Because I really dig that. For some odd reason, I like that, and I couldn't tell you why. Uh, Because Buckler draws it so well. Maybe that's it. Um, let's see. I had a couple other notes. But I mean, do you like it though? Or, or? yeah, I like it. I like okay. it a lot. Um, it, it's probably I like Hawkman visually. I just don't like him much as a character. Right. It makes me feel bad because he's Roy Thomas's favorite, and yet every time I see him in this book, I want him to go away. So <laughs> I feel really guilty. Liked seeing Plastic Man. Yes. Th- this was the first issue of All Star Squadron I read. So the recaps made me felt like I missed something because I was totally unaware of the Justice League uh, preview. So when I finally got to read that, it was like seeing the first episode of a TV series that you never saw until years and years and years later. Right. Yeah, um, when, like when the cage came out and then you go, okay, yeah. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. King B is one goofy-looking character. Yeah, he Lord is. Lord in heaven, he is such a goofy-looking character. Um... You know who he reminds me of? He reminds me of that, uh, what was his name? Oh, it's like, it was like the Gadfly or something from Web of Spider-Man, the guy who, who <laughs> used all the bug sounds. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I know exactly who yeah. you're talking about. Uh, I like Paradigaton. Yeah. But next episode, I'm going to reveal the fatal flaw with every Paradigaton story I've ever read. Um. But we'll save that for next time. Oh, no. I think I know what that fatal flaw is, and I hope this isn't another one of those kind of stories. I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I really get the feeling that, that Slugger wants to, to nail Rod's sister. She's a hot redhead, man, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, like I said, I've uh, I've kind of lost my, my taste for redheads, but... 
I still appreciate them on a certain level, so there you go. Um, I love the fact that Johnny Quick runs in pretending to be the Flash, basically. <laughs> the Flash? I thought he disappeared. You know anybody else who could breeze us, uh, breeze by us like that? Maybe they don't, but I do. You're Johnny Quick. I like the fact that Johnny Quick shows up and everyone's like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> <laughs> We don't know you, pal, but they all get to walk into the White House anyways. A bunch of masked men and women get to just stroll through the front door of the White House and meet with the president, because none of them could possibly be enemy agents or anything like that. Ah, <laughs> uh, the trusting 40s. Um, I really like Liberty Bell's costume, and I have no idea why. Because it's hot. <laughs> She's got them riding pants. Um, there was a real fear uh, that night, especially in San Francisco, of the Japanese possibly attacking the, the mainland. Is that the same night that the movie 1941 is supposed to take place on? I think so. I've never seen 1941, so I can't say for sure. I need to watch it again. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but that's basically the premise of that movie. So, so yeah, that's pretty much all I got. I mean, this outside of this is just such an awesome issue. You're absolutely right. My God. It's just... You just read it, and it's just like everything is right in the world with this book. <laughs> Every single thing. The artwork is great. The writing is awesome. It sets up the premise of the series, and it just makes me smile every time I read it. I'm surprised how little our, our notes crossed over, because I thought we'd end up covering a lot of the, the same things between us. But other than the art, uh, which you're absolutely right about, my, my note is simply the art is unreal, because it, it is it is just incredible. It is really, really solid stuff. And uh, right, out of, right out of the gate, this issue just comes out swinging and, and really nails it for me personally, just because of some of the characters that are here right at the get-go, like Plastic Man. I love Plastic Man when he's done like this. I don't like it when he's over-the-top silly and ridiculous. I, I like it when he's much closer to the classic... I'll I'll agree with that completely. I, I yeah. don't really understand people's obsession with Plastic Man, because people who like Plastic Man really like Plastic Man. Yeah. I love him, but I seldom see him done the way I like him. I was going to say right, and that's not fair, because there's no right way to do you know certain characters, but... But I seldom see him done the way I care to see him done, which is not completely silly and ridiculous. And he's not in this story. He's just another superhero that acts superhero-y and courageous. I like that. I, that I'd rather see him portrayed that way. Um, I really like, and I thought it was very interesting, the note right in the uh, text piece at the very beginning about how, you know, basically superheroes started popping up on this earth in 1940 as opposed to earth one where it was 1960 i thought wow that's really interesting that they actually gave a date to when the uh the justice league kicked into action on earth one i thought that was interesting especially seeing as though this book is dated 1981 that means that the justice league has been around for 21 years and that just seems really odd because that means a lot of their members are kind of up there in age so i'm kind of surprised that they would actually yeah 
Thanks. So I'm really surprised that uh, that Thomas would would give us such a solid date, or or not give us a you know if he was going to give a date at all, that it wouldn't be later than 1960. That's it's just interesting. Um, let's see what else have I got here. Uh, along the lines of Plastic Man is Sir Justin, who I was just uh, you know of course I I knew he was in this series, but I didn't realize that so many of the guys I love so much about this series, like Sir Justin and Robot Man, I just didn't remember them being in the series so early, you know, right at the beginning. So I'm thrilled to see that they are because those are the guys that I that I really liked. Probably the, the number one guy would be Sir Justin. There's something about that character I really like that I that just works for me. So um, Well and I, the thing is about Sir Justin is that he's one of those characters that I had no idea who he was, but because Roy Thomas put him in this series, I became a fan of him. Right. And it's why seeing him on the JLU animated series was so awesome. That is a great episode. Oh man, that that uh, that that's uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory episode. Is that the one you're talking about? I don't know what the name of it is, but it's the one where it starts out and there's a parade, and it's I think oh, it's yeah. like that, Superman that, Day or something. Yeah, and he the old be woman, there. yeah, the old woman's bitching because all the heroes that are there are guys that Where's she doesn't Superman? know. Yeah, she's looking for you know she's looking for Superman, and they've got a uh, vigilante, Shining Knight. I can't remember who else is there, but those were the two big guys. And that big Hulk-looking dude, the general, I think is his name, shows up and beats the hell out of him. Uh-huh. And it's a great episode because it's everything Sir Justin is about, about nobility and facing the enemy, not not backing down. And it's just a fantastic episode. I, I highly recommend it. And... uh because it really does, in one short little half-hour episode, it totally encapsulates everything I loved about that character. And um, and, it had, you know. and it had a couple justice slides. There was a thing that was repeated over and over again in, in, in Justice League, and, and especially in Justice League Unlimited, where in a battle sequence, at least once an episode, a character would be knocked back, but he would be sliding oh, with yes. his hand on the ground. And I and I refer to that as the Justice Slide. You're right. I really want to take the song Electric Slide <laughs> and, and kind of edit those all those together, but I don't have that kind of audio, uh, software, so it's not going to happen. I don't know why I never did this as a kid, but a lot of times these old timey, you know, these guys that spoke in what what I call Shakespearean talk, you know, like Thor, Sir Justin, characters like that, they would say things that I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. And I don't know why I never just you know, whipped out a dictionary and looked this stuff up, but I did today because I did. I wanted to know what the hell does by by my halidom mean. I looked it up. It basically means by by all that is holy or by something holy or something sacred. You know, something sacred to him. So, you know, it's like when when Thor says, you know, by my troth or something like that. It's the same basic idea, but just thought it worth pointing out. Now, page 12, this is my favorite page for just pointing out goofy stuff. When they get into the fight, uh, by the way, I love this this three-panel fight between Solomon Grundy and Sir Justin. It's just Mm -hmm. beautifully drawn, very, very beautifully drawn. And uh, Solomon Grundy just savagely takes out Sir Justin. If it, if it wasn't for his uh, invincible armor, that that blow might seriously do him in. And then the next, yeah, 
The next sequence is <laughs> the absolutely ridiculous-looking Professor Zodiac. He throws this liquid stuff at Danette Riley and melts her gun. And then in the next panel, he says, Get her, Grundy. My universal solvent has disarmed her. Um, no, dude. A uni- universal solvent is water. So I don't think he threw water at Danette Riley's gun to make it melt. Nice try, but I don't think so. You need to come up with a better name. He was name. probably aiming for her clothes and just missed. Ooh, now that would I would I would be there for that. Now my favorite line of the entire issue, one of my favorite comic book lines I've read in a hell of a long time, is uh, where Grundy takes Danette out in the last panel of page twelve and says, "I will only tap her a little." And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've said that same thing on many a date back in my youth. So uh, I just thought that was really funny. Wow. Lastly, because I love the character of Sir Justin so very much, I was fully prepared to bring back something that sadly just kind of fell by the wayside quite a long time ago. I don't know how it happened or when it happened precisely, but... We used to do character spotlights, and somehow just it just kind of dropped off as a feature. I don't know why exactly. So I started to get ready to do this, and then I suddenly realized, wait a minute, didn't we already do Sir Justin? So I looked back. Sure enough, go back and reference episode 8 of the Tales of the JSA, and we did indeed already character spotlight Sir Justin. So because I really would like to bring that feature back, I decided to character spotlight somebody else I think is totally awesome in this, which was Plastic Man. Plastic now, Plastic Man, his uh, secret identity or his uh, real self is Patrick Eel O'Brien. He was created by writer-artist Jack Cole, and he first appeared in Police Comics number 1, August of 1941. See, he hadn't been around a whole long time uh, in the real world, anyway, before he uh, was part of this story. And basically, his origin story, for those that don't know, he was just like a small-time crook. And he goes in with a bunch of his buddies, and they're robbing, what is this, like a chemical plant or something. And during a, a police shootout, he is winged, and much like the Joker, falls into a vat of chemicals, or I think it's acid in his case. But he doesn't die, and he... What is it? Like, his his buddies leave him behind. I'm trying to remember how he... He winds up in a monastery, but how the hell does he get to the monastery? I can't remember. He just stumbles there. Stumbles there. So he wakes up in a monastery, and because of the chemicals and the acid and everything else getting into this open wound, or maybe wounds, I don't know how many times he was shot... He it reacts with his body chemistry type of deal, and he gains complete pliability. He becomes a, a rubber or you know plastic man, and because the monks saved him and they basically you know teach him all their their Jedi philosophies and everything, he decides he's going to be a good guy, and he becomes plastic man. And he goes back and, and helps the police or whoever round up all of his old buddies. I'm, I'm probably not remembering the, to- the story totally correct, which I should because I've read it like a billion times. It's in that yeah, it uh, superheroes book that I love so much. Right. But uh, yeah, so he became you know a, a superhero that way. And it's just a great guy. That original 
know, if you never read any Plastic Man beyond the, the first story, at least seek out a, a reprinting somewhere of Police Comics number one and read the original Plastic Man origin. I guarantee you'll like it, even if you don't think the character's cool, even if you think he's lame. Read that story. It's great for both the art and the story are fantastic. For a Golden Age book, it'll shock you how cool it is. Um, and then, of course, eventually he did become a member of the city police force and eventually even the FBI, which is what gets referenced here. He's working for the FBI in the uh, beginning of these uh, All-Star Squadron tales, and he would be the liaison between the uh, FBI and basically between the government and the uh, the All-Star Squadron. And now uh, you had a couple other notes on uh, Plastic Man, right? Uh, yes, I did. Um, yes, it's, like you said, his first appearance was in Police Comics number one, along with the Human Bomb and the Phantom Lady. <laughs> and starting with issue five, Plastic Man took over the lead feature in the book and stayed there through issue 102. He also appeared in his own title, starting in 1943, which ran 64 issues, and DC acquired the character in 1956 when quality went out of business, and there was a Plastic Man series in the 1960s and like towards the late later part of it when they had the checkerboard mm-hmm. covers. So I have uh, one or two issues of that. I don't know if I've ever read them, but I had some. And then when he came back in the set, that's where I was introduced to the characters when he came back in the 70s, and that was some weird stuff. And I had that damn cartoon that. series with the live action. Plastic Man in the beginning, which always creeped me out. Yeah, Ugh. I only vaguely remember that. I remember Pla- Baby Plaz more than anything, and just was like <laughs> he was—he was like the Scrappy Doo of cartoons in, in that time. And he had the like Plaz. somewhat retarded sidekick, who I think was Hawaiian. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, uh, I've got. I'd forgotten about that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and he had this totally like hot blonde wife too. So yeah. Though I she guess was if you ditzy. though I guess of course if you could stretch any part of your body to whatever size you want, you pretty much have your pick of the ladies. That so. chicks would dig him. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> we do have some ads again. Mm-hmm. Love the fact that everything's coming back. Unleash a Darta demon and leave the others in the dust, which is a Looking like some kind of motorized car that has one of those little things. I guess if you pull it back, um, it clicks and then goes forward. Oh, I hate those things. I thought I, th- I was looking at this thinking it was one of those. What, my dad used to call them HO cars. I don't know what the hell HO stands for, but it's the ones like on the track. But that's I not what I think so. It. They, oh. These actually have a little engine with them. In fact, a Darta Demon reaches a speed of 520 miles an hour in scale. <clears throat> And we'll run 75 feet on one wind. So, <gasps> yeah, who cares? Another bubblegum <laughs> bubble uh, bubble ad where the boy looks like he's telling the girl that he really likes her, and the other boy is trying to cop a feel. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I didn't notice that last issue. Really upset that I noticed it this issue. Uh, skipping over the hostess ad for just a second, which is going to be really uncomfortable to read yeah it's an uh, all-female cast in yeah. that one. uh lifesaver another lifesavers ad like from last month you know the ads just aren't as good in this one as they have been an attack, attack of the mutants attack of the mutants uh a 
prizes for cash, Olympic, and on the back, you can be a member of the most fulfilling club in America. Everybody loves Icy, and it shows you all the things you can get in the Icy Club. It Basically, at like Walmart and Kmart, you could get an Icy. Um, mm-hmm. I always preferred Slurpees. Yeah. I thought they were better, but I have a I have a fondness for Icy's. Now you can get them at McDonald's. McDonald's in the Peachtree City Walmart has an icy machine. It kind of weirds me out. Because, <laughs> like, one shouldn't be there. It's like when I see Coke at Burger King. It's like, no, you guys should be Pepsi. Because you're mortal enemies with McDonald's. Because they used to sell Pepsi back in the 80s. Right. And sometime in the 90s, they started selling Coke. And that's basically, I think, around the time communism fell. Um because that's what it feels like. It feels like we don't have mortal enemies anymore. Coke and McDonald's and, and Burger King cannot be mortal enemies because, well, one, that king would kick the Hamburglar's ass, I think. You know, if they really threw down... The, that, I don't know about you, but the Burger King king freaks me out every time I see him. Like, <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. It's like the Hamburglar. It's like, okay, Mary McCheese. Eh, he's kind of weird. That king, uh, that smile... But uh, it used to be, you know, like McDonald's or Burger King, Coke or Pepsi. Very sad. Nothing is as good as it was in the 80s. I'll buy that. So I guess that leads us to our Batgirl um, (laughs) ad. How are we going to do this? I'll be Batgirl. Okay. Now, do we want to do this in, like, trying to do women's voices, or do we want to I was to just going to say, I bet you folks don't know that Batgirl has a really butch voice. <laughs> or do we want to do this as in, this is a bunch of transvestites reenacting this? Because <laughs> I'm more comfortable with that. I'm more, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be Batgirl in drag, basically. <laughs> okay, very yeah, good. I'm not going to do a female voice through this whole thing. <laughs> So this is Batgirl in Fruit Pies for Magpies. We've got uh, appearing nightly, the Magpies, at the uh, Fairway Theater Restaurant Lounge. What the hell is a sand wedge room? Is that just somebody can't spell sandwich right? Or No, sand wedge is a, uh, is a golf club. Oh, okay. All right. Par I... in, it's called the par in. A par is the amount of holes that a certain... Yeah, I hate fucking golf. Yeah, I'm getting really good at it on Wii Sports Resorts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I could play it if it was a video game, but I mean, like, real <laughs> golf. Oh, don't, don't. And that is such a tangent that somebody's going to end up writing, what's your problem with golf? Gardner hates everything. I'm not going to go off. I'll tell you what my fucking problem with golf is that on Saturday afternoons, I wanted to watch goddamn movies, and my dad would watch golf. So I'd wait for him to fall asleep and then change the channel. My problem with golf is that the people who play golf don't have a fucking sense of humor because my my in-laws literally have in their backyard a golf course runs through their place because they live in one of those kind of communities, right? Mm-hmm. So I like to yell out the window at the golfers, you know? Four! And they, these people have absolutely no sense of humor whatsoever. You know, or you let the dog run out and shit on the on the greenway, they, you know, or whatever the hell they call it. You know, they don't seem to have any any sort of uh, no sense of humor, those people. Anyway. Jesus, Scott, that's terrible. No, it's not. I hate those bricks. Anyway, <laughs> see, I, I went and tipped my hand about how I really feel about golfers after all, because so, I just can't keep it inside. So anyway, we got uh, Batgirl. She's inside this uh, par in place, and she's up in the rafters, and she thinks to herself, 
This nightclub attracts wealthy patrons, but they've been prime targets for some pickpockets. I'll have a bat's eye view from up here. So below them, the magpies are talking amongst themselves. <clears throat> we've starved our we've starved ourselves for days to look like the real magpies. This better be worth it. It's a snap, sugar. They're so dazzled by our dancing, they'll never notice our nimble fingers removing their valuables. It's showtime, lady, ladies. Let's make a million-dollar debut. Batgirl comes swinging down out of the rafters, and she's thinking to herself, Looks like it's up to me to make this closing night for those fake birds. And as the act begins, there's plenty of lovely loot, but look at those. Wow! Hostess fruit pies, apple and cherry. That's what I really want right now. The light, tender crust and the real fruit fillings are scrumptious. Curtain's coming down on you three. Maybe you can perform in the prison variety show. Who'd believe a magpie could be brought down by a bat? (laughs) You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Fruit Pies. And the very next panel is the three of them purging. (laughs) Well, they haven't eaten in days. They're probably really hungry. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. There's really not a whole lot. I I get a big kick out of it. It's sad and pathetic, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. Starved ourselves for days to steal like, some of them. They get the, their asses kicked. Now, granted, they get their asses kicked by Batgirl, who um, <laughs> who's a formidable foe. But ah, um, she just ties them up while they're eating fruit pies. There's there's really not any uh, and, kicks, and the kicks to asses. Writers begin writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you really want porno music at that point. <laughs> Oh, Batgirl, you've tied us up. <laughs> I'm not the only one thinking of this. I know that. No, no, no. I... <laughs> um, the memorable quote for me in this one, and I see why you thought that the, the one from the last issue was in this issue. This is, again, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I want you of the Justice Society to mobilize every one of the nation's costumed heroes, men and women, into a single super-powerful unit, a sort of all-star squadron, so to speak, responsible to no one but myself. Talk about the buck stopping there. Good Lord. (laughs) Well, with that, I say let's take a break and come back, and uh, we have some email that we need to address. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Comics 
Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big hang up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find the Spider Man. Okay, we are back from break. Welcome back to episode 31 of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. And uh, since I figure I'm probably not going to be touching any more funny books for the rest of this episode, I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm freaking starving to death, so I went and got myself a snack. So if you hear me munching, I'm sorry, but I'm going to die if I don't eat something. So anyway... We are going to delve into the uh, JSA mailbag because we got a ton of feedback that we need to uh, address. So take it away, Mike Bailey. All righty. The first one is titled Episode 23. It says, Hey, guys, another great show. However, you touched a nerve with me when you were discussing the ads for those Army soldiers. I recall them well. They sold a variety of sets of toy soldiers that ranged from the Revolutionary War to World War II, and I think there were even some Roman legions or something like that. Well, let me tell you from first-hand experience, those soldiers needed to come with a warning. The warning should have said that these soldiers are the biggest piece of crap you are ever going to get. You would be better off speeding down the highway, throwing your money out the car window. <laughs> I ordered the Revolutionary War soldiers, and my cousin ordered the World War II ones. We both got the same thing. These these two-dimensional World War II-looking pieces of garbage. They were literally thinner than cardboard, and nothing was in the same scale. After 30 years, I'm still bitter. Also, you wanted to ma- also just wanted to make a few remarks regarding some of the feedback you've gotten. I don't take any of the remarks you've made as hating the material you are covering just because a story or stories may not be all that good and in some cases may even be worthy of being made fun of does not translate into hating the material if you will allow me to cross the streams for a moment cross the streams one of my favorite (laughs) movies is Smokey and the Bandit I love that picture and can watch it over and over again however at the same time I realize that it is it is some of it is for lack of a better word stupid and I can even make fun of some parts. However, that does not detract from my love of the film. In my opinion, offering both praise as well as criticism demonstrates that you actually care about the material and the characters involved. I feel the same way about movies like Delta Force and Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. I love those movies. Mm-hmm. Especially Remo Williams. That's one of the best action films of the 80s. Remo Williams rocks, man. Dude, and what a great score. 
Mm-hmm. What a great freaking score, which I still need to get from you. <laughs> no way. <laughs> I hate you. Uh, as far as the Big Bang Theory, I've only seen it once or twice, but I don't find the program entertaining. I feel it plays to the lowest stereotypes, and if it was about any other group, it would be labeled as offensive. It is offensive. Uh, lastly, I'm sorry for running on so long. I think it's great you're going to cover the JLA-JSA crossovers, and I can't wait for you to get up to the All-Star Squadron. I've been picking up those back issues lately and think it's they are great. Are we covering the All-Star Squadron? No, nah, I don't want to. Yeah, neither do I. As always, the show and your rapport, not chemistry, is excellent. Keep up the great work. David A. Pascarella. Thanks a lot, David. I appreciate that. That was a great email. David's a great guy. He's been uh, giving us feedback on uh, on the other programs as well. So, yes, thank you very much. All right, the next one is from John M. Wilson, and he writes in about episode 24. He says, let's hear it for kissing cousins. Yeah, he says, that was so awesome and creepy at the same time. I don't know if you've read and remember, but there was a Silver Age story that this immediately brought to my mind called Superman's Super Courtship which also had a what-the-fuck-kissing-cousins moment. I've attached the art in case you don't have it in your head. No, I didn't, but I'm really glad that you sent this in because we are going to address that in a minute. What he's talking about, folks, is way back in this episode 24, we were talking about uh, Superman of Earth 1 and Power Girl, who is essentially the Supergirl of Earth 2. Uh, basically, we're pretty sure that they scromped at some point, which is kind of freaky since they're kind of sort of maybe related. You know what I mean? So anyway, uh, uh, he goes on to say, Michael, this is your 24th episode of JSA, and this week also saw your 48th episode of FCTC. So you've been doing this pretty much half the time as the other for what that's worth. Interesting. Both of the JLA-JSA team-ups left me feeling kind of cold. Neither was impressive at all. Made me really wonder about DC's stories during this era, and I'm hoping there's better fare out there. I'm guessing from your own disappointment that this will be the case when I read other stories from this time period. Otherwise, you'd have been saying typical 1970s DC tripe, and you don't say things like that, so I have hope. Next week, more team-up crossovers. Yay! And then so many other things. I'm wondering how many apps we're actually actually going to have before All-Star Squadron. Would you hazard a guess? 5, 12, 23, just wondering, John M. Wilson. Yeah, we've done the uh, math on this, and we figure that there's going to be a total of 427 more episodes before we get to um, All-Star Squadron. So just stick with us. We'll, We'll get there. And in the meantime, okay. we would like to actually do a Hostess-style production of this awesome freaking thing that you sent to us. I just wish I knew what comic this was out of. That's the only thing. John, if you know what what story this is or what comic this comes out of, I have got to track this fucking thing down. So here we go. After the super duo returns through the time barrier to their fortress in 1962 AD, we've got Supergirl and Superman together. Um, Mike is going to take the role of Supergirl, and I will take the role of Superman. Oh, God. Okay, that's cool. 
All right. Superman, I have a confession to make. I wanted to arrange a happy marriage for you. I fa- failed both times. If I ever did marry, it would be to someone super and lovable like you. We can't marry because we're cousins. Though cousins can marry in certain countries here on Earth. We're both from the planet Krypton, where the marriage of cousins was unlawful. And he's cupping her chin and raising her face up to him almost enough to kiss her in that panel, I'd like to point out. And then he's got giant maps on the wall near his just ridiculously oversized computer. It's like Univac or something. And it shows the Krypton solar system and our solar system. He's pointing to the Krypton one and he says, there on that cosmic map is Krypton and its sun. After Krypton exploded, we both reached Earth eventually. The solar rays of Earth's yellow sun gave us superpowers. Wait, the supercomputer machine. It's given me an idea. As Supergirl operates the amazing device, hooray! Screening all possibility factors, it indicates a superwoman duplicate of me exists on the planet Starl. I beg you to go there, Superman. You owe it to to yourself to discover if she's the mate for you. And the comment (laughs) on the bottom of this... Says so after their secret se- so after expressing their secret sexual yearnings for each other, Supergirl decides the solution is to find a Superman a honey that looks just like her. Cause that's not creepy at all. <laughs> wow! What the hell was the writer thinking in this? Oh my god, that's oh, too funny. Geez. It is absolutely hysterical. I love the line. Love the line. Though cousins can marry in certain countries and well, certain well, states well, like, like Alabama here well, on Earth. Like he's saying, well, I, I think I've told you before. I don't know if I've mentioned it on this particular show, but uh, back in two, from 2000 to like 2002, I delivered papers for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is the biggest paper in Atlanta, and uh, for the Fayette County area. And one day I go to work after they stopped doing, they, they used to do a morning edition and an afternoon edition. And I, after they stopped doing the afternoon edition, I started working nights, which kind of sucked. But one day I go into work and um, they have what is called under the fold, which is under, you know, you have your headline and then you flip it over and that's under the fold. Under the fold, on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, says, Marrying cousins not as bad as once thought. (laughs) And I'm just like, are you kidding me? (laughs) You're the good God in heaven. (laughs) Boning your sister not as bad as once thought. Yeah, that's just... uh. You know, talk about playing to your stereotypes too. You yeah, know? I mean that, that that that's what upset me about that whole thing. I mean, it really, yeah. God, I think we should. <laughs> that's just that's like a headline of you know, Waffle House waitresses really don't have any teeth. You know, it's like what what are you what are you thinking running something like that? You Watch know, it, pal. I met my wife at a Waffle House. <laughs> yeah, was was she a waitress there? Yes, she was. Oh, I take it back. She was eighteen. It was her first job out of high school. Uh, and I'll never forget the first day I saw her as I'm sitting there. I'm waiting for this other girl that I was trying to date. Scam on. Yeah. 
uh, to get off because I was going to give her a ride home. Uh, and I'm sitting there eating breakfast, and I turn around, and this little dark cloud walks into the Waffle House at like 7 o'clock in the morning because Rachel is not a morning person. <laughs> and I just thought she was kind of cute, and she had these amazing eyes too. So, yes, I met my wife. Yeah, where Waffle are they House. anyway? <laughs> I took them out, put them in. <laughs> <laughs> no, Rachel. If you, next time you you uh, we get together, look at Rachel's eyes because of the genetic condition it, she has, the osteogenesis imperfecta. The whites of her eyes have a bluish tinge to them. It's kind of interesting. The only problem is is that a bluish tinge to the whites of your eyes is also a sign of a massive head injury. So when like emergency personnel have to deal with her, we have to explain that she does not have a massive head injury and I have to bite my tongue. But <laughs> she would do the same for me. Trust me I'm telling you this. Uh, anyways, um, going on to the next email, which is just labeled fan mail. It says, Hey guys, First, I wanted to say how much I've been enjoying the podcast. My introduction to the JSA was back in the 70s, reading all the issues you guys have reviewed so far. For some reason, the team just became my favorite DC super team, and it was very fun watching them develop as they did back then. Very good work so far. However, I'd like to ask if you will be covering the Secret Society of Supervillains, number 15, as this was one of the issues that made me fall in love with the team. Yeah, I know that the series ended with that issue, and that storyline was never properly resolved. But I've seen a synopsis on the internet of the material printed in Cancelled Comics Cavalcade, numbers 1 and 2. So we have an idea of where the storyline was going. And it was just so cool seeing the Adam and Dr. Midnight cut loose against real supervillains. It was that issue in his appearance in All-Star Comics number 69 that made Dr. Midnight my favorite JSA or just a suggestion. Uh, we're going to be covering Secret Society of Supervillains as a whole over on um, Back to the Bins at some point. I think we agreed to do that. We had a, our original idea was we were going to do this massive crossover between Back to the Bins and Tales of the JSA where one of the shows... We would review, you know, basically we, we would read all issues of, I can't remember which show was going to do what. I guess Tails was going to do, was it Freedom Fighters? I think yeah. it was Freedom Fight. yeah. Tails was going to do the entire series of Freedom Fighters, and Back to the Bins was going to do the entire series of Secret Society Supervillains. And... It just kind of fell by the wayside for several reasons, not the least of which is we were really, really anxious to get to All-Star Squadron. But also, I mean, let's face it, Mike and I have real lives, believe it or not. And it was just going to be a hell of a lot more time uh, investment than either one of us could really make right now with all the other projects we've got going on and real life to read through both of those series right now. We'd still love to do it. And if there's enough interest out there, you know, after you guys hear this to, to want us to do it, then, then we'll try to fit it back onto the, the docket at some point, or maybe do a series of specials or something like that. But at the moment, it's going to have to fall to the back burner, unfortunately. You know, the sad thing is, is back when they first announced the secret society of supervillains was going to get a showcase presents, Mm -hmm. They announced that those that 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 story that was supposed to be in number sixteen was actually going to be in that issue. It was going to be in that collection. 
so they were going to print all of it. See, I didn't know that those were in those Cancel Comic Cavalcade, because I actually have CBRs of both of those issues of Cancel Comics, so I have to check that out. How many... uh, how many generations removed is it, though? I mean, how many times has that fucker been <laughs> Xeroxed? Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty rough looking. But I mean, those issues are rough anyway because they're they're all from unfinished materials, so it can only look so good anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had a friend bring in. Uh, he was very excited because he, he he bought some off of eBay that had the Ragman story because he's such a fan of Ragman, um, which I appreciate. I appreciate when people have like a love for a character like that. Because it means that whatever it was about that character appealed to them and that the creator somehow succeeded. Right. So I feel the same way about Iron Monroe. Um, as for episode 25, it was another winner. The discussion of JLA number 171 to 172 was just flat out hilarious. I remember first <laughs> reading those issues as a kid and knew that the thing was way wonky because they were trying to shoehorn the story into a traditional murder mystery. However, the setup just makes no sense. Think about it. Mr. Terrific, Terrific has purposely come to the JLA satellite with his quote-unquote plan. He states, when one of you learns the truth, one of you will be branded a trailer or some shit like that. Meaning that he knows that one of the JSA is really the spirit king. But it also means, logically, that he knows he is going to be killed. <laughs> so let's just back up a bit here. The Terrific one's plan is to come aboard the JLA satellite and un- unmask the presence of the spirit king impersonating a hero by getting his ass murdered thereby uncovering the mystery WTF? Why in God's name would he simply <laughs> announce that one of the JSA is possessed by the spirit king the second he touched down on the satellite? Or simply confided his sus- suspicions to one of the JLAers since he knows the spirit king can't be one of them since they came to Earth one- they come from Earth 1 okay, I'm going to stop right there two reasons on that one did you see how everyone was treating him yeah i was just thinking that too and two scott and i have said this a thousand times earth two people on earth one are treated like shit <laughs> so it would have been like yeah yeah that's really nice mr terrific yeah yeah guy impersonating spirit kings here yeah but you go get a fucking drink and shut up <laughs> Things play out in my head more interestingly than in real life. Uh, continuing, or why couldn't he have just written a note to be found by the people who found his body saying, if I'm found dead, jump on Jake. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he wanders off alone from the party, thereby inviting the killer to murder him and sow distrust amongst the two teams. What a brilliant plan this isn't. Does the phrase <laughs> not thought all the way through come to mind? Unless Mr. Tr- Unless Mrs. Terrific comes out of this with a gigantic insurance settlement, bilking insurance company seems to be huge with the JSA, apparently. I don't really see this as much of a win-win plan for Mr. Terrific. Normally, I would pity the fool who would doubt a Mr. T plan, but I really think he outfoxed himself here. Thanks for the laugh, guys, and keep up the work, Christian King. <laughs> Thank you for the laughs, Christian. That was oh, funny. God. He's absolutely right, too. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. <sighs> It's funny as hell, though. Uh. <laughs> I love this next one from uh, David Pascarell again. He just says real quick, he says, Tales of the JSA, he says, Hey, guys, he goes, my vote is to skip the Wonder Woman stuff and full speed on to All-Star Squadron. Well, we'll take it under advisement, David. So our next one is from uh, Sean Foster, and he writes in, his is entitled, Oh, those crazy days of the JLA-JSA crossovers. 
Hello once again, Mike and Scott. I thought I'd drop you all a line about your coverage of the JLA-JSA crossovers in the late 1970s, among other topics and comments. Despite the less than stellar qualities of the stories and JLA's, uh, this is 13 through 7, I think he means one, it's what is this, like 136 through 137, something like that. And it, basically, it's all the ones that we covered. He says, I found your takes on them outstandingly hilarious. Oh, thank you. So it's especially humorous was the whole discussion about Earth One Superman slash Power Girl hooking up. I think I hurt myself juggling at the concept and the images it evoked in my mind. Oh, you dirty, dirty man! You weren't supposed to evoke images. So it sort of puts that panel of them walking away together uh, towards the um, towards the Fortress of Solitudes in the final is- issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths in a whole new light. Well, I hadn't thought about that. He says, now Kal-El's comforting arm on Kara's shoulder doesn't look quite so comforting anymore. (laughs) Maybe it is. Maybe maybe she's helping him through the the grief of Supergirl. (laughs) Maybe he made her wear the costume. Oh, that'd be awesome. I told you. (laughs) In what way? There needs to be like uh, like the, the George Lucas special edition extras added scenes in there. I'm telling you. Says, as for the Huntress calling the Earth One Batman Uncle Bruce, I seem to recall that came about from an issue of The Brave and the Bold from around this time, where she helps him clear his parents or maybe just his father of having direct ties to organized crime or something like that. I think the story was reprinted in the most recent edition of The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, Volume 2. I know exactly the issue you're talking about. I plan to cover that somewhere down the road at some point. But as we found out when looking back on those uh, Batman family stories, uh, that that Uncle Bruce thing actually originated, uh, I think, in the very first one that she was in, which was number 17. Mm-hmm. So it's moving on to JLA 183 uh, through 185. I find myself agreeing with Scott on letting the new gods and the other fourth world characters rest rather than try to recreate whatever lightning Kirby caught in a bottle during his initial run with him. I also agree with Mike that the DCAU probably came closest to using the new gods and dark side uh, in an in an entertaining manner. He, yeah, he means the animated. Yeah, that's right, DCAU. However, Grant Morrison's most recent efforts involving them were a steaming pile of dreck that appears to be the rather sad end of these characters, which makes me feel a genuine twinge of sadness. Can you tell I have issues with Morrison? Well, pff, I have major issues with Morrison. You have a subscription with Morrison, uh, Scott. <laughs> you have like a freaking newsstand with that man. Not that I blame you. It just comes down to I don't subscribe to... Uh, I don't know that I even want to get into all that because it's going to open up a whole new sub thing of of emails that I don't even really want to address. But yeah, <laughs> it, it really just comes down to I don't I don't tow the the party line when it comes to Grant Morrison. Let's let's put it that way. Anyway, uh, he goes on to say, and now we come to the sheer and total awesomeness that is JLA one ninety five through one ninety seven. I paid a visit to the old. To what? To tour? Tour. You know, my oh, buddy the tour Tor? books. Oh, no. okay. I got you. T.O. Rent. Yeah, T.O. Rent. Tour. <laughs> I paid a visit to old T.O. Rent and got myself copies of these bad boys to read along with the episode. Oh, that's awesome. Needless to say, I was not 
disappointed with this story at all. The villains were well organized and took down the various unaware heroes in unbelievable ways. It's always nice to see competent bad guys. True, a part of you knows the JLA-JSA will rally back and triumph in the end, but Conway and Perez do a good job of creating some doubt about the outcome. That the ultra-humanite plants the seeds of his defeat in his treatment of the Earth-1 villains is a classic evil mastermind mistake that would be cliché in a lot of other stories. But here it is rather sweet and it's totally in tune with Ultra's personality and ego. That final panel showing the Earth-1 and Earth-2 villains uh, chasing down and attacking the ultra-humanite in limbo for his backstabbing ways is just the icing on the cake for me. Says now there was something that I thought for sure that Scott would notice on the letters page of issue number 197. Take a quick gander at the writer of the last letter on the page. Tell me if that name doesn't look familiar. Could that be an artist you will be talking about in future episodes of the podcast when he takes over as the artist on a certain Earth 2 team's title? Just seeing that letter from Todd McFarlane. Compliment Perez on his pencils made me chuckle slightly. I did not notice that, and I'm embarrassed with myself that I did not notice that. And uh, why does that make you chuckle, I wonder? Are you not a you – don't, you don't like um, McFarlane or what? But, you know, his, his stuff during that time that you're talking about, that Infinity Ink stuff, I like that stuff. I'm sorry. I, I know he arguably was, was to blame for what would eventually become that whole 90s look that's so reviled by so many people. But his raw stuff when he was still hungry – I love that stuff. I, I still, well, I'm hoping I still love it. It's been a while since I've looked at it, so we'll see. But anyway, he goes on to say, now onto the topic of whether the show should cover the World War II period of the Wonder Woman title in the 70s. I think it should be, even uh, in a highly summarized form, as Roy Thomas brings back at least one of the villains from it during All-Star Squadron. Maybe you could do it in conjunction with your coverage of all new collector's edition C-54 Superman versus Wonder Woman. But I'm sure you'll figure something out. Anyway, I'm looking forward to the Power Girl origin and the Huntress backup stories being covered. And yes, Joe Staten does take many opportunities to give us nearly nude Helena throughout the stories. For that, I thank him. Now cue that smooth jazz music, Sean Foster. Wow. <laughs> I didn't realize we were this backed up in the emails if we if we hadn't even got to the uh, Power Girl Huntress stuff yet. But uh, we are still going to continue to, to cover the Huntress material at some point. We are most definitely going to cover Superman versus Wonder Woman at some point. Uh, the Wonder Woman and World War II stuff in Wonder Woman and World's Finest, got to be honest, I think that's kind of fallen by the wayside. I don't think either one of us really just have... Uh, just just not the wherewithal right now to do it, just because it, it's just going to take too long to read. Yeah, it's you know? it, yeah, it's too far off our, our mandate, I think, for this show, honestly. Which, which is like reason number 575 that I'm kind of glad we're going through with the All-Star Squadron, because that means instead of having to read six books... <laughs> or a bunch of different books for one episode. We've got two. It's right. Easier to, it's easier to do time management that way. Right. But that's just me. Um, let's see. We got a we got a quick one from our good friend Thomas DJ. 
says, maybe I'm confused here, but I thought the Spirit King finally got his reward at the hands of the John Ostrander, Tom Mandrake, the Spectre, an issue, I don't recall the issue number, which also introduced the new Mr. Terrific. And I'm pretty sure that predates the Johns Robinson JSA. Just saying is all. Well, I think he's right. I haven't read that series yet, but I I, I think the Spirit King was killed before, you know, uh, before he was killed again. (laughs) <laughs> Before he was killed again. Okay, I'm going to take your word for it. Alrighty, since that was such a quick one, I will read another quick one from Charlie Niemeyer. That's titled Agamemno, in episode 27, the already classic email episode. <laughs> Is it the already classic email? Uh, episode? I'll take his word for it. Yeah, I, I will too. You guys kept questioning who Agamemno was. The name sounded familiar to me, <laughs> so I did some digging. Turns out he's the villain in Mark Wade's Silver Age miniseries from a few years ago. Hope this uh, helps. See you guys next week, Charlie. Yeah, I read that once and filed it away as crap. So nothing <laughs> against Mark Wade or Tom Pyre or anybody else that worked on that to bring back their beloved Silver Age didn't like that thing at all so yeah i I, read it i've got most of it and uh i i hope that i got it like as part of some collection i bought or something because i i cannot bring myself to read it i just can't get past the r in it but uh that's not to say you know thank you very much charlie for for the info on that i I, I appreciate him pointing that out to us it's just man brought up like memories of the time you drank too much and ended up puking you know in, in the bathtub and it turned out that you know it was your <laughs> future in-laws bathtub and they came home just as you were doing it and their daughter was naked on the bed i mean it's just, just just bad times well everything leading up to that was pretty cool but just that moment <laughs> not that that ever happened to me Actually, mm-hmm. that never did happen to me because nothing that interesting ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. We're going to go on to the next one. We've got one here from Stan Johnston. He says, this space for rent. He says, hi, guys. Nice run of recent episodes covering the JSA and their post-All-Star Comics appearances. I've been listening, just not finding a lot of time for commenting uh part of things hey that that's no problem don't worry about that it says as punishment i have spent three hours contemplating what would happen if our unit to our universe if chuck austin and rob liefeld ever collaborated on a comic believe me that is not something that needs to happen oh stop it that's not nice and he says anyway i love the dead yeah, man story you know, rob liefeld's much better than chuck austin <laughs> Am I the only guy that just doesn't get the whole thing with Chuck Austin? I, um, what? I have, like, very specific problems. But then again, I always have some very specific problems. <laughs> so you don't have to go through them here. Um, but, yeah, you are the only guy. <laughs> okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure. So anyway, he goes, I love the Dead Man stories from the issues of Adventure Comics that you have talked about recently. Between Garcia Lopez and Aparo, the artwork is gorgeous, and the Don Newton art from the Aquaman feature is excellent, too. I completely agree. So I'm really glad you decided to cover the JLA-JSA crossovers. The stories weren't always great, Witness 147 and 148, but it was always exciting to see both teams together. You guys were right on 
uh, right on with how creepy the whole Power Girl Superman thing. We got a lot of mileage out of that. Yes, we did. <laughs> had the potential to be. And the look on Black Canary's face from JLA 147, page three, panel four, was priceless. I'm going to have to look that up. Does she look like horrified or something? I'm not I'm not I think sure. It's like, hey. <laughs> I have mentioned before that I have a certain fondness for Dick Dillon's work on the Justice League uh, because he was the artist when I started reading the series, but I also know that uh, what his limitations were. The team-ups from JLA 159-160 uh, was not some of his better work, even given those limitations. Yikes. I won't comment other than to say your remarks about the splash page of 160 got a nice belly laugh from me. Hmm, what did we say about the splat? I don't remember. I also, Scott's mentioning other Jonah Hex appearances was appreciated. I had totally forgotten about him being in the Legion, so I had fun checking out that again. Uh, I remember being very excited when George Perez took over the Justice League art chores after Dick Dillon's death. Death <clears throat> says there's really no comparison between the two. Perez brought a dynamic modern art style that the book really needed. Dylan was technically sound, but his style was wooden compared to what Perez brought to the table. In all honesty, Dylan had probably stayed too long on the title, but it was still sad to, uh, that it took him dying to get a new artist in there. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. And that's kind of the point I was trying to make in the episode was that I, I've literally read somewhere I don't know if it was online or a trade magazine or what, but somewhere along the line, I've I've heard really ugly things said to the effect of "Thank God Dylan died to give us parrot." That's just cruel. That's just really mean. Even if you don't like the guy, I mean that that seems really heartless to me. But at the same rate, I completely agree about him. You know, kind of overstaying his welcome. That was kind of the. You know my my point with the, with the Kurt Swan material as well. This is the crossover from JLA one eighty three to one eighty five was the first time that I ever gave a damn about the New Gods. I knew who the characters were and had bought the last few issues of their revived title, but I just couldn't get into the characters. They looked cool and all that, but I guess the writing had never captured my imagination. Aside from that, heretic that I am. I just never liked most of Kirby's solo creations. He had great ideas, but desperately needed an editor to keep him from straying too far into general weirdness. I completely agree. Justice League 195 through 197 is agreed the best ever JLA JSA crossover. It took all the promise of the previous team ups featuring Darkseid and delivered on it. Perez had hit his stride by now, and his art was absolutely amazing. Unfortunately, Keith Pollard's pencils seemed rushed and uh, seemed rushed rather and took away from the overall appearance of the art. I don't recall myself taking a shot at Pollard uh, because I think he was an excellent artist who is often overlooked, but his work here just falls short. You almost wish that DC had just let the book run a month late so that Perez could have finished everything on his own. I, I once again I agree. You should totally skip the Wonder Woman stuff from World's Finest. I recently reread a lot of the issues from that era, and the best thing about her was a Paul Kupperberg-drawn story that co-starred Sergeant Rock. Most of the stories were simplistic, and the artwork uh, was very generic. Wonder Woman's own title 
was uh, in pretty much the same shape, in my opinion, although there was one Mike Nasser issue that looked great. Oh, I've got to find that. I love Mike Nasser. And there were uh, a few excellent covers by Garcia Lopez and Buckler along the way. If you can find a site that offers recaps for these stories, then use it. If not, just whistle past the graveyard and no one will notice. Well, they are all recapped in that uh, Alter Ego magazine that I mentioned at the top of the episode. So you guys you know, that are really interested in that material, hunt down that issue. You can find all those recaps there. Regarding the Huntress feature from Wonder Woman, I think it's a great idea to cover the material as its own backup to the regular podcast. It would probably go faster and have more cohesiveness if you if you focused on story arcs instead of an issue-by-issue issue breakdown, however. As for running time, I really don't have a preference. I listen to podcasts like Tom vs. The Flash that are brief, and I listen to others that run for several hours. It all depends on how interesting the subject matter is and how it is presented. Looking forward to the next episode focusing on Power Girl. I'm digging out uh, those issues of Showcase to read tonight. And Sorry. that's Stan Johnston. <laughs> Thank you, Stan. And lastly, would it be an episode with emails where we didn't hear from Jose Rivera? <laughs> His email is titled, Responses, Responses. Hi, hey guys. In response to last week's ep email episode, I want to address a couple of things. First, in regards to the question about how to cover the Hunter's backups. I like the idea you came up with that they would be the backups to upcoming episodes. Hell, you could do it a la what used to be the standard DC Comics formats. Have a few episodes where the Hunter's backups are briefly mentioned at the end, and then build them up so you can do one whole episode to knock out the rest. Think of it like the Goodwin Simonson Manhunter story. We had excellent backups that culminated in one giant issue to finish things off. Speaking of future episodes, I cannot wait to get to Steal the Indestructible Man. I finally got issue number three, the one I was missing, and I read all five issues. I can't wait till you guys discuss it because I found the entire experience to be a mixed bag. There was a lot of great elements to it, but at the same time, it was a product of an era in terms of convenient plots and cheese factor. We'll cross that bridge when we find it. I know the expression is cross that bridge when we get there, but I swiped mine from a Duran Duran song. That's right. I like Duran Duran. God, Jose, sensitive much? <laughs> Regarding who the hell Agamemno is, I was talking about a fifth week event DC did back in July of 2000 called the Silver Age. He was a villain who managed to swap the minds of the Justice League with members of the Injustice League. This event made Batman distrustful and mind control, mind switching, and any variation thereof, which is why he ended up creating profiles on other heroes in the event that if someone was being controlled, brainwashed, or mind swiped, he would have a plan to stop them. This event was written by Mark Wade, who will continue this in his JLA story, Tower of Babel. I think right here is a perfect example of why I'm so cavalier about the Justice League, yet so passionate about the Justice Society. Back in 2000, when the Silver Age and JLA were dealing with issues of trust and respect amongst team members, as Batman basically helped Rachel Gould take down his teammates, and JSA, the team were dealing with how to help Atom Smasher deal with the anger and frustration he was taking out on Cobra for causing the death of his mother. The JLA were taking this event-will-fracture-us-forever approach, while the JSA was taking a let's-stand-behind-a-friend-who-needs-us-more-than-ever-and-bring-him-back-from-the-brink. Something you two have said, and we listeners have said time and time again. The JLA are a team. The JSA are a family. 
I too love the idea that we li- listeners have a one-upsmanship amongst us. I'm convinced that Trent Thornton, John Wilson, Dion Cottrell, and many others are lining up to kick my ass every time the email portion of the show hits. And in the spirit <laughs> of upping everybody, allow me to say that the first email read on the show was mine. So there. In all seriousness, all the regular emailers, <laughs> and even the new people all have love hearing our stuff right on the air. But the biggest thrill is to being able to add something to the show. With most podcasts, you're just listening to opinions. With your shows, you allow us to be a part of the fun, and we really appreciate that. People like Trent, John, Steve, Dion, and everyone else would agree. Here we have a great group of people who can articulate their thoughts, ignite interesting debates, and even make our hosts laugh once in a while. I have no idea what he's talking about. So if there's a, no, I'm just kidding. So if there's any one upping, it's all done in the best and sincere way possible. One final question: Where the hell is our artist? Don't get their due episode. I'm dying <laughs> to chime in on that. Well, I want to chime in on Steel as well, but I want to talk about those artists. Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera. <laughs> now, if you heard the, uh... oh, wait Back a minute, no, no, it hasn't. That hasn't come out yet. I was just going to say if you've heard the. Uh... The trivia thing, but that that hasn't come along yet. That's that's still in the production phase. Basically, what happened is we were all set to record at lo- uh, at long last. We were going to record the uh, you know talent and comics that don't get their due episode with a special guest. And Mother Nature once again just kind of put the kibosh on that, and uh, so it did not happen. But it is still in the queue. It is going to happen. I swear to God, it will happen. I had my notes and everything. <laughs> I still have my notes. I'm I'm just about no, ready. I'm, I'm ready. I'm I'm I'm. <laughs> it's about to get heavy. But I just settled on my lawsuits. Fuck you, Debbie. Sorry, it's an Eminem reference that you probably didn't appreciate or get. Um, sorry, I'm getting a little punch drunk here at the end. Yeah, I was thinking that same thing myself. That uh, <laughs> getting getting punchy because I can't read anymore. So. <laughs> Well, I think that is it for this episode. Unfortunately, none of these issues have been reprinted anywhere. So sad. So sad. Well, I hope ups- you guys... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. On the upside, I won my eBay uh, uh, lot for World's Finest number 271. Oh, awesome. Yay. I'm excited. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it was a monster episode, but uh, we felt that it was uh, well-deserved kicking off this uh, bold new era in our show. So uh, write in and tell us what you thought. Give us your give us your feedback. Keep, uh, keep those uh, letters and postcards coming, as they used to say. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. 
Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. We will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl.